This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. Hello, one and all, to the 16th episode of Through the Years, the podcast where me, Trevor Dane, and him, Matt Feuerstein, review Ring of Honor show by show from the beginning. Matt, it took us a little while, all due to me, my fault, everybody, but we are here in the 2018. Is you're, you stop blaming yourself. You're, uh, you know, we're all, you know, none none of us are innocent. Is what I'm trying to say. It's what it's really what I've been trying to say this whole time. We all have to look in the mirror. We all have to change. Um, it's new year, and um, we're all gonna burn. Everybody, you have to do some deep personal accounting for at least 20 minutes before you're allowed to listen to the rest of this episode. And the, pull you know, out your dream journal. Get to it. You can interpret that however you want. If you want to actually just do some like personal accounting of your finances, that's okay too. You just got to do <laughs> some sort of accounting. Uh, never too early to start tax season, and never too early to keep up with Place to Be Nation, Pro Wrestling Only Podcast Network's great slate of podcasts. And quite frankly, I've been kind of up and down this month, had some things going on. And so I already have a massive 2018 podcast backlog. And one of those is Psychology is Dead and their top 120 matches of 2017, a series of podcasts they've been doing. I haven't listened to one, but I've heard a lot of good things about uh, the recent Psychology is Dead podcast. Um, yeah, uh, it's weird. It's always weird when I have, when I'm plugging something that I haven't listened to yet, but I've heard enough good things about this that I've got it ready. I just haven't had time to listen to it. You're just spreading positive word of mouth and I'll second that. I'm amplifying the signal from Twitter as social media people might say, but so uh, actually the interesting thing for, um, when I'm looking at my notes here is normally this is the part of the show where I would talk about the news that happened at the time between the last ring of honor show we covered and the show we're covering this episode. But because there was only a one week gap between, um, expect the unexpected and the show we're covering today, which is night of champions. I don't really have any news, but we do have something to talk about, which is the historical significance of this episode. I mean, this the show, the episode, the podcast will never be historically significant. If this episode of this podcast is historically significant, something that means something will have gone horribly wrong. So let's hope not. <laughs> Somewhere like an hour in while we're talking about the Carnage crew, Matt will inadvertently come up with the cure for cancer or something. This is going to be like a Bill and Ted write the song that promotes world peace moment. I'll have my Twitter open in case some global thing happens while we're recording uh (laughs) so that we can um you know immortalize the moment when you and i found out about this particular thing (laughs) that i hope does not happen and i don't know what i'm saying and this is not this is not me (laughs) having intimate knowledge of anything that's going to happen i'm just gonna so i'm just gonna quit um so yeah there's a lot of significant things. This is actually a sneakily very significant show for a variety of reasons, Night of Champions. The first is, it's the first Briscoe's tag team match in Ring of Honor history. Not that their first tag match, but it's the first one they've had in Ring of Honor. Um, the most obvious reason this show would be significant is, it's the show that Samoa Joe wins the title and starts his big legendary reign. Basically, ROH was waiting for the moment where Samoa Joe could win the title and they could sort of actually have an actual title uh, 
that felt like a title. Um, <laughs> and uh, I don't think anyone in the crowd on this night realized that this was happening, but it certainly uh, it certainly feels bit like a big deal in retrospect. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like you talking about the crowd not expecting it. We'll obviously talk about it more later. But that's something Joe in an interview once even said. He said that one of the reasons Gabe gave to him when he when he told Joe that like I want you to win the title is it will be a surprise. Like the fans in Gabe's mind, the fans will not see you as a guy that will win the title. And I mean, based on the reaction today on the show we watched, I think he was absolutely right about that. For sure. So, but the sneaky reason this is actually an incredibly historically significant show for Ring of Honor is in a slightly different alternate dimension. This is the last Ring of Honor show ever. And if one little thing changed, this would have been the last Ring of Honor show ever, which I think Matt would mean, I don't think we'd be doing a Through the Years podcast if Ring of Honor ended after Night of Champions. No, we would definitely be... um be doing like a pwg retro show which by the way there is an opening for so just saying through the zoo no uh we'd have to come <laughs> with other some other pun for that but um instead of deep vein thrombozos our fans would be like i don't know the ape squad or something like see, you come up with the puns i'm not good at that but uh, give me, give that's me homework few, give for me next a, give me a few minutes <laughs> okay well while you're thinking i'll actually explain um, why this would have been the last Ring of Honor show, I think I briefly mentioned this during one of the early through the years episodes and then filed it away, but this comes actually from a Mike Johnson, I wouldn't say eulogy, but a remembrance article he wrote when Doug Gentry passed away, and for those who are listening only in the last few episodes, a quick summary of Doug Gentry, he was one of the two announcers for Ring of Honor at this point as Ray Murrow, he was one of like the three big faces behind originally Ring of Honor. Rob Feinstein was the owner. Gabe was the booker. Doug handled all of the production work at this point, all the editing and putting the tapes together. And when he passed away, you know, far too young, years ago, Mike Johnson wrote this. And I always try and source these things and tell you what the source is because, you know, as we might talk in a second, not always – our source is reliable, but Mike Johnson's been right about some things. Mike Johnson's been wrong about some things. I don't necessarily love all the, his, the ways he reports news, but this sounds like it's pretty likely. It's very specific. So I will just read to everybody um, this passage from Mike Johnson's remembrance of Doug Gentry after he passed. And Johnson writes, The truth is, if it had not been for Gentry, Ring of Honor, as everyone knows it, simply would not exist today in any form. By March 2003, Ring of Honor had been in the red for some time, and things were looking bleak. Carrie Silken, a friend of Gentry dating back a number of years, approached Ring of Honor about coming on board as an investor. Without a doubt, had Gentry not cultivated that business relationship, Ring of Honor would have been another independent that had a solid run only to fail. Had Gentry not known Silken, Ring of Honor would have ceased to have existed following the Philadelphia event where Samoa Joe first won the Ring of Honor championship from Xavier. So... That's uh, Mike Johnson right there, outright, like, nailing it down to the specific show, which, again, is the show we're going to review tonight, saying, if not for Doug Gentry and Kerry Silken being willing to invest, this is it. Like, apparently, Ring of Honor had lost enough money that Rob was going to pull a little more after a year, pull the plug. Yeah, and that's an interesting story, obviously, for the history of Ring of Honor. It's also interesting 
because like these are two guys that are so important in ROH history. Obviously, I mean, Kerry Silkin goes without saying. He was the owner for many years, um, probably through its. I mean, through its most important, or at least most uh, fondly remembered years. But Doug Gentry is another guy where obviously he was hugely important. He was on commentary for a lot of these shows, and we not much has ever really been reported about him in the mainstream. Um, you know, the mainstream wrestling news outlets, um, you know, obviously Gabe uh, Sapolsky and Rob Feinstein, a lot of, lots been said about them, but it definitely <laughs> seems like um, Doug Gentry had, at the, this, during these early stages, you know, pretty close to as big of a role as they did, and it's hard to really know what that role exactly was. I And that's... Um, you know, I don't know. We're going to have guests on the, in the future. Like, uh, again, I want to thank Joe Gagney for being our first guest on the last episode. And I should mention now that guests won't be something we do every episode, but we definitely have people that are willing and people we like. So on appropriate episodes, when we think it's the right mi- pairing of show and guest, we'll have that. But I just say that because I don't know if we're ever going to have like a interview on the show of someone from Ring of Honor. I have no idea unless... Brian Danielson, please remember us. Your first call when you get out of your WWE contract. But the the thing, if I could interview anybody about a subject, I actually would like to know more about Doug Gentry because I, I keep going back to when Voices of Wrestling did their big voting honor roll thing for who do you think is the best wrestlers in Ring of Honor history, which in some ways kind of sp- led to this podcast, fr- a couple more additional steps and it led to this podcast. Right. Um, I remember Gabe at the time, they had the, I mentioned this I think once before, but they also had, in addition to the 50 best wrestlers, they had the top 10 or 15 non-wrestlers, and Doug didn't finish like that great, and I remember Gabe actually like specifically said on Twitter that like Doug should have finished higher, and that he was, you know, way more involved like than you would think. Yeah, I'm. I, that's what I hear too, but I'd like to know the specifics. Just because yeah, exa- obviously we're interested in the topic as we have a show about it. And it's just a little sad where, as you mentioned, you know, Rob and, and Gabe are both still in the public eye. They're still talking. So, the you know, people we know a lot about them. Doug, even when he was alive, didn't seem to, you know, be quite as much of a public figure. And because of his untimely death, uh, you know, people definitely have an out-of-sight, out-of-mind thing. So whatever contributions he made, I feel like, are getting forgotten. Okay, so I came up with the name of the PWG show. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Retro Wrestling Gorilla. <laughs> good enough, right, for now? Good, good enough is my slogan for a lot of things. Uh-huh. But... <laughs> um, that threw me off, but... Sorry. No, no, that's perfect. I, I asked for it, and I got it. I got exactly what I wanted, <laughs> as always. But so, yeah, Carrie Silken was a was an ECW fan. R- Rob Feinstein and Doug Gentry and Gabe Sapolsky were all involved with ECW, so I assume that's when the contact was made. And Carrie Silken was a big wrestling fan. Found time to in, to invest. There's a couple more things I want to talk about. I think we should talk about before we get to the review as it pertains to this subject. I think the first thing is, this was a quote from The Observer that I should have said on the last show, but I decided it would be more appropriate to say for this show. And I just want to contrast 
this quote from Dave Meltzer with what Mike Johnson, I just read from Mike Johnson. This is what Dave was writing in 2003 around this, the, this month in time. Dave wrote, and this is going to echo something that Dave had written a lot, this talking point throughout the first year of Ring of Honor. But Dave writes, Ring of Honor usually budgets its shows to, to where 500 tickets is break even on the event. The company itself is structured to where the shows are largely to provide videotape products. So the live shows are actually expected to lose a little money and they make it up on video sales. The recent shows have been profitable even before the first video is sold. Now, I think Dave wrote this before expect the unexpected and mm-hmm. you have gentry on the i mean you have mike johnson on the other side retroactively like years later saying they were in the red and they were going to pull the plug around this time so we've talked in the past i know uh, john Filipovich wrote in and said dave's as a live fan in this era that dave's crowd estimates were on the high side and not accurate necessarily i mean something doesn't add up i think clearly uh, on this example if Mike Johnson's telling the truth, I, I think that adds more weight to this because it seems like every few months Dave would always say, "Oh, Ring of Honor's budget, so if it does four fifty, it breaks even, or four seventy five, now five hundred. And yet, look at how many of these shows drew around that amount. I can't see Ring of Honor as a company being like so deeply in the red; it's about to pull the plug. If that's really true, yeah, I um, like like we said. A lot of stuff that doesn't really add up about what they say their business model is, but, you know, what can you do? Even just the fact that they ran the Elks Lodge and apparently did a good crowd there in New York, and they don't come, go back to the Elks Lodge, and they don't return to New York till I think, near, near the end of the year. So right. just stuff like that tells you that show probably wasn't great financially for Ring of Honor. Well, well, they don't return to New York City proper for more than two years after that. They, they go to... Um, uh, New Jersey, like an area right outside of the city, and then they go to a place upstate New York, which is a different market um, later in 2003. Yeah, so I think it's obvious, like I said this recently about um, Impact Wrestling, I said this a few months ago when people were talking about their house shows, and I was like, people were debating like, oh, were those house shows successful for Impact or not? And I said at the time to people, if those shows were successful, you'll know because they'll go back to those co- markets fairly quickly and likewise i think you can tell if they made money from that elks lodge show probably because they probably would have come back quicker if that was like a a financial success especially for how good the atmosphere was if that show even broke even i would have come back to it quickly for sure um yeah it was it was a good show it seemed successful there's yeah there's definitely a reason that they went to jersey instead i mean it's pretty obvious that you're running in new york city is expensive um but it seems like they must have really taken a hit on that show. So, and, and part of me wonders, this is a very, I'm usually not one to get into conspiracies, but part of me wonders the timing, because this story came a few weeks before Night of Champions, and part of me wonders, like, was Ring of Honor floating that they're doing good to try and entice Carrie Silken to invest? Like, Carrie reads The Observer, like, let's tell Dave that these last few shows have been profitable before they even sell the tapes, like... Hmm. Because it seems weird that the timing of where all of a sudden this story pops up in the observer that the, the recent shows not only are break even, they're profitable before the first video is sold. And then magically weeks later, that's when Carrie Silken becomes an investor, apparent, like by all accounts, to bail out the company. 
So, so you think that Kerry didn't know that he was actually bailing out the company? He thought he was buying into like some big uh, uh, profitable organization? Because that seems problematic. <laughs> it could be even be something in the middle. Like they could say to Kerry, you know, well, we admit we've lost some money, so we need an investor, but we think it's turning around. The last shows, few shows have been break even, but we need that extra burst of money. Like there's ways you could frame it. True. The idea. I mean, I'm, the I'm, thing again, is, I, I wonder what the legality is of <laughs> putting some, or of like totally lying about your finances to somebody who is buying your company or investing in your company. Feels like it's probably illegal to falsify. Yeah, and again, I don't want to say that this is a, no one misconstrued this as me saying this is a real thing. This is all coming from my warped brain. That's just like a thought that popped into my head. I didn't even know how much weight I personally give it. it. Just the timing seems weird, especially again if Dave was truthful, or I don't think he's knowingly lying here. But if he was right about the last few shows being profitable before the first video was sold. I don't think that's the time you look for an outside investor. I think that's the time you think, you know, we're on an upswing and we're going to reap all the benefits ourselves. I, I don't feel like that's the time you start looking from, as opposed to the start of Ring of Honor. I would say if it's a lie, it's probably just a simple explanation of, you know, businesses try to make themselves look good. Uh, and if there's a reporter that's going to report whatever they tell them, why not just tell them that you're better, doing better than you are? Exactly. And the last thing I wanted to mention with this Carrie Silken thing is we're going to start seeing some production changes on this show and the next few shows, in part because of Carrie Silken and I assume his investment money. This is something that was written on the Ring of Honor website shortly after Night of Champions. The Ring of Honor website, they posted a little message that said, you will see many production improvements in Ring of Honor over the next several shows. It started with last Saturday's event, and they're referring to Night of Champions, which was taped with brand new, super high-quality mini-DV cameras. A new scaffold also gave the hard camera a better position. There will also be several other improvements to the presentation of the product soon. Ring of Honor thanks all of you for these improvements, because it is with your support that we can make the product better for you. So... I starting with the next show, Epic Encounter. This is this show, Night of Champions. It's the last Ring of Honor show in Philly. There's going to be one or two other shows, I think, that are still lit with the house lights. But starting with the next show, Epic Encounter, we're going to go to the era of dark building, professional lighting setup. That's and. We're also going to, um, in a few shows, I think, go to the half red, half black canvas. Like you're going to start seeing a lot of little physical production changes. If my memory serves, there's only one other show that doesn't have the uh, the, the lighting rig. I think it's Retribution Round Robin Challenge Two right. in Pittsburgh, which will be right. two shows from now on through the years. Right. But I, yeah, I think you're right. I think I think. This is the la- this is certainly the last like house lit show at the Murphy Rec Center and sure, yeah. one of the last period. But it's interesting. I always thought that that this would be a Gabe idea, but again, we don't know if Carrie's telling the truth or not. But I found a radio show where Carrie Silken, this was years and years and years after the fact, said that he really want like he was really passionate in this interview talking about how he wanted to improve the lighting. He said, you know, he's a big concert guy, sells tickets and stuff, and he was he was going, you know, that great atmosphere thing at a concert where show starts, lights go down, show ends, lights go up, and he wanted that 
for Ring of Honor. And he claims that Gabe told him, like, didn't it didn't make it sound like it was a huge fight, but like, Gabe was like, I don't see why we need, like, it looks fine without the lights. But according to Kerry, that was his idea to have, you know, building lights go down and just buy a lighting rig that can be set up in every building to make a very specific lighting setup for every show. Yeah, now... I mean, we'll obviously get to this when the time comes, but I remember distinctly noticing that after, so the lighting like the, and the production got better and better and better throughout 2003 into early 2004. Then, after the big, you know, Rob Feinstein scandal that ended up with him leaving the company, the lighting and the production in general seemed to get worse for a little while. Um, and Kerry was still there. So, I mean, I guess we'll see if that if my memory bears out, um, but I'm pretty sure this is the case. And so it'll be interesting to kind of look at it and kind of try to figure out why that happened. And one funny thing, I just re- looking back at this Ring of Honor website quote, the part where they said that the show was, was that the Night of Champions had a new scaffold, which gave the hard camera a better position. I'll note that watching Night of Champions, this is the only Ring of Honor show so far I've seen where the hard camera was noticeably darker in color than all of the um, handheld mini DV cameras at ringside. So I don't know if the new scaffold position did that or if they just didn't color calibrate all the cameras so that they were in the same lighting range. I think it was was a problem with the white balance. Yeah, it it was kind of jarring. So it's funny to see, see them say like, oh, we had a new scaffold that gave the hard camera a better position when actually this was in, in just from camera production, my least favorite Ring of Honor show so far, just because every time it cut, it was like, oh, this is too dark. And then we go to the, uh, just the handheld camera angles and you go, oh, this is like normal. This is fine. Yeah. There are other shows where that becomes a thing as well later on that I remember, but yes, it was definitely noticeable. Um, I guess th- I guess the quality of the picture was better though. But- uh, it's hard to notice, and it's funny. Like it shows you how fast technology advances. Where they're crawling about mini digital video cameras, and yes. how a few years later we'd all be talking about like, oh, which promotion's going to HD, and yeah. even later like Blu-ray, and now even that seems antiquated because everything is just eye pay-per-view or digital, and ev- yeah, I don't even know what the modern camera technology is anymore. I'll be honest. <laughs> Yeah, I, I just feel old reading that, like, f- only 15 years ago, it was, like, mini-DV, and that's, like, five steps now back in, like, the evolution yeah, of how sure. this stuff is filmed and served to us, so. Yeah, when I was doing, like, when I was doing video stuff for my, in my college, yeah, we were, we, we mini-DV was, like, one of the things that we used, and that was, I graduated college in 2005, so. Yeah, so, God, we're getting old we're gonna be dust soon and it's funny like i assume they're making all these production things because carrie's putting money into it i I don't know if that's for sure obviously but i forget the number i should have gotten the number before the podcast but i remember reading ahead in observers like a year later when the feinstein scandal happens and they were talking about how much money carrie had sunk into ring of honor and i think it was in the hundreds of thousands of dollars in one year they said he was owed wow like that there was that much debts. I think it might have been like, don't quote me on this. It was six figures. It might have been for some reason my brain's leaping towards four hundred thousand dollars. Jeepers! So think about that because bet- the time between now, which is when Kerry jumps in, and when he takes over as full owner when he has to because of the Feinstein scandal, is probably about one year. So it's bleeding yeah, it's, it's him pretty, pretty much. Hard. Exa- it's pretty much exactly one year. Yeah. 
Yeah, and it makes sense that if Ring of Honor was costing that much, you could see why Rob Feinstein, who probably did okay with our video, but Rob never strikes me as a guy who did okay enough to lose hundreds of thousands of dollars in a single year good. So if Ring of Honor was really that expensive to run, I mean, I can see why he'd be reaching out to a guy like Terry Silken. Yeah, I mean, totally makes lots of sense. <laughs> so with that done, we can finally get to proper... Ring of Honor Night of Champions took place March 22nd in Philly at the cozy old Murphy Rec Center, our old friend. This was actually, I think, this is the first show of 2003 in the Murphy Rec Center. Yeah, they hadn't been there in, like, almost in three months. Yeah, they hadn't been yeah there. Not, not since Final Battle 2002. And I think I remember at the time they said, you know, they kind of wanted to give the Murphy Rec Center a bit of a rest and Philly a rest. And they did. They gave it three months so and i felt like the crowd was was ready for them like they weren't like they were they were hot for like the beginning of this show um in a way they weren't in the la- the later few um uh shows there in 2002 and as always take with a grain of salt the announced attendance was 420 fans which is a solid regular show number especially when this show it had some interesting matches but didn't have any like huge hook i would say it was just a a good solid up and down card right i agree with that and just real quick is this the um this is easily the the quickest turnaround between shows right the one week they hadn't done anything like that before right yeah they they had not done a double shot yet so at the i mean my memory for the stuff is horrible even though it's all shows we've covered on the podcast but at worst it's tied but i think this is probably the first one week turnaround they've ever had yeah, that, that, that sounds right to me also. Where they do a show, then come back one week later and do another show. Um, we start the show with a short Steve Carino promo. A on-screen graphic says it was sent uh, the night of Expect the Unexpected from backstage at a Zero-One show in Japan. It's a promo where for most of it, all we see is a, the wall of a shower room because the conceit of the promo is that Carino is cutting it while he takes a shower. Says he doesn't care about homicide or low-key or the prophecy, and for the millionth time, he dares Christopher Daniels to throw the first punch and start the feud between his group and the prophecy. This was very short and inconsequential and was just one of those Carino promos you had at the time where it was like Ring of Honor. You know, Carino was at this time spending so much time in Japan that they just, I guess, felt like they needed these little meaningless promos to remind you, like, Carino's still in the company, he's coming back, there's still a storyline going on, like, don't forget about him. Do you think that, like, it was a bad idea, even without, you know, Carino's other problems that happened later in the year, to revolve the show around Carino so much, considering that fact? I, I think so. I think that's probably something... They may be, this is something I feel like they had to learn. This is one of those early growing things, which is you can't rely on people that have serious Japan commitments. Yeah. Like if a guy goes once in a while, that's okay. But you can't really put a lot of weight. If you're a, like at Ring of Honor at this time was a pretty fairly heavily angle based promotion. Yeah. Y- you can't just have a guy miss three shows in a row or more, you know, yeah, because of Japan. Yeah, way more. I mean, you can still have that guy as a special attraction, like a Doug Williams or something. But you, uh, yeah, I, I think, and I think a couple of years later, Gabe would be much more hesitant to do something like this. I yes. think he would learn his lessons from stuff like this. Well, you'd think Donovan Morgan alone would have uh, helped him. And Donovan Morgan, <laughs> they didn't put it, they didn't put nearly as much on Donovan Morgan, but he was a champion and what got to defend the title what once, twice, and as opposed to um, some guys that 
you know, they skit with Ring of Honor and then that leads to a Japan thing while they're already established. I mean, it was known probably from right at the start of Ring of Honor that Karina was a big, like, foreign player in Zero One. That was his bread and butter. That was that was his home promotion. You know, he, he basically ran the office for all the foreign talent and all of that. So, you know, Ring of Honor was never going to be on the same priority level as, as that. I think, I think a lot of stuff in early ROH that maybe seems suspect seems to be a lot of based on, I'm just kind of speculating, Gabe still being a huge, um, you know, I hesitate to use the term, but I can't think of a better one, mark for ECW. So like, oh, this thing was an ECW. It was so cool. We gotta, we gotta, you know. So if it was an ECW and it worked, you know, we 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 should pay homage to it here. So like, Carino was a big star at the end of ECW. Um, so he like, I think like he thinks that you know that ECW thing will will help get this over in ROH. And I don't think everybody felt as strongly about that as he did. I also think that Gabe at this point early on is just desperate for guys he sees as good promo guys because it feels like even if they don't have much to say, guys like Daniels and Carino get promos at least once or twice on every Ring of Honor release if they if they're like even in the vicinity of the building. Like even when Spanky was there, he gave Spanky a lot of camera time. I just feel like maybe rightfully so, Gabe felt like the early crop of talent in Ring of Honor, not a lot of them could cut a good promo. So when a guy did, he would just put him there, you know, every sh- every home release, you would get Christopher Daniels promos, and if he was available, Steve Carino promos. Yeah, well, that's so, true, so- too. Um, but, like, remember, like, just, like, how excited he was at that Tommy Dreamer promo at All-Star Extravaganza? Like, I think that ECW thing, you know, kind of um, held a lot of weight to him. No, you're you're exactly right, and I think we've talked about earlier episodes about, I mean, people forget, and we used to talk about a lot more, this, it's kind of faded out as a story at this point, but how the landscape of indie wrestling in 2002, where Ring of Honor started, was a lot of companies fighting for ECW scraps, and using a lot of old ECW talent, and some companies outright just trying to emulate ECW, so right. th- that era... Even though Ring of Honor was considered the company of all those that I think tried the least to be like ECW, even they, I think I agree with you, like they couldn't escape some temptations to try and grab a little bit of what was left of ECW. I agree. And meanwhile, back in Philly, away from Carino in Japan, the next little segment is Special K is partying backstage with new member Mikey Whipwreck, complete in sombrero and boa, because that equals comedy. Uh, Special K wants Jody Fleisch, who's a member, to do drugs. Offers him a lot of them. Fleisch says he can't do them tonight because he doesn't want to get his arse kicked by Loki later. Whipwreck then changes the party music from techno to rock, which only he enjoys. Matt, I've seen better (laughs) anti-drug PSAs. Yes, um, I have too, but also... Like, not that I want them to, but do you think that any of these people um, actually did these things? Because, I mean, if so, it basically makes it seem like partying and doing drugs is like a kid's birthday party. <laughs> and maybe it is. I don't know. I, I don't do it either. But I, uh, it, it doesn't seem particularly debaucherous. I, I get the impression that... Uh... Mikey Whipwreck might enjoy a, a thing or two once in a while. Uh-huh. And certainly former member Josh Ma- Matthews, sadly, has a well-documented 
history of enjoying imbibing in various... Joey Matthews. Oh, Joey Matthews. Yeah, not Josh Matthews. Josh Matthews, Josh Matthews has a history of uh, partaking in fashion, not drugs. It's true. The other vice that young men have. Uh-huh. <laughs> you can't relate. Um, yeah, elsewhere back... I, I, I don't have either of those vices. For me, it's um, candy. And candy is dandy. Some say liquor is quicker, but I like to take my time. Enjoy <laughs> some red vines. Um, that was a lie. We don't get red vines in my part of Canada. I don't know why I lied to the audience. I promise I will never lie to you again. I eat Twizzlers. I'm sorry for lying. Anyway, elsewhere backstage, it's a Christopher Daniels, Xavier, and Allison Danger, the prophecy, although as always, Donovan Morgan is missing. Uh, Daniels cuts a promo on his opponent tonight, Doug Williams. Daniels reminds us that he beat Doug in a match in Ring of Honor where the Stip said that Doug could no longer shake hands in the promotion again, which that turned out to be an incredibly weak Stip. Matt, I looked it up. Between the time of that match when he lost the rights to shake hands and this match where he wins the right again to shake hands, Doug Williams had a whopping two matches in Ring of Honor in that time. So it was a stipulation that prevented him from shaking hands twice. Well, I mean... this goes to the Carino thing that you were just talking about, which is they booked a guy with a stipulation when they knew he couldn't come back every show. Yeah, I mean, also, the stipulation wouldn't have really mattered that much if he could. But, yeah, I mean, I that's pretty silly. I think maybe they didn't plan on, you know, him getting out of it, but then they, I don't know, maybe they were planning on using him more. I, I don't know. I'm trying to overthink this. But <laughs> I think there was one show he was booked on that he had to miss. Like, I think maybe... Um, Revenge on the Prophecy maybe might have been a show, I think, that he was booked on and had to cancel or something. But still, that would have been three shows, and they're already going back on the gimmick. They're just saying, like, let's write this out. Yeah, I mean, it's it was silly to begin with, as we discussed. And um, might as well get rid of it. Might as well go yeah. back on it. Daniels tells us that... Uh, after he beat Doug Williams in Ring of Honor, he went to the UK a few weeks later and beat Williams and Jody Fleisch for the FWA heavyweight title in the UK. He became the first American to hold it. He says tonight he's putting the belt on the line, the FWA title. He's putting the Ring of Honor the Ring of Honor number one t- contenders trophy is up for grabs. And he decides to throw in, if Doug Williams wins, he'll let him shake hands again. So three different things on the line tonight. And really, it's... Why would you throw in the handshake? Because, I mean, I guess it's a cocky heel, like, ha-ha, I'm so confident I'm going to win. But you're already putting a title on the line. You're already having the number one contenders thing. Like It's like Christopher Daniels is going real double or nothing here, except he doesn't gain anything from throwing in the extra thing. Yeah, I mean, it's it was you know it was a little bit contrived. But Daniels, I mean, it is true. Like, if you just think of Daniels as a character, as far as heels go, he seems like a pretty, like decent guy <laughs> you know like he yeah. does shady cheating stuff doesn't like the code of honor but like if you listen, look at his promos he like he just he seems like an okay dude even as a heel i still i still say that that promo at the end of um the first year anniversary show in new york where he talks to christopher he talks about steve carino about how he, he and him how daniels and carino were always friends and like I've always been supportive for you and happy for you. Why do you have to like come after me the one time in my career something goes my way? Like that was a babyface promo. And again, there's something about Christopher Daniels, and actually, I think I have a note about this later when his match comes up, where he's a good heel, 
but there's something sympathetic about Christopher Daniels that shines through that almost hampers him some way sometimes, I feel like. He just feels like a likable guy. He never seemed like a particularly dastardly heel, even when they were really booking him hard like that. And whenever you, you watch shoot interviews from like the young indie wrestlers of this time, anyone from Samoa Joe to Kevin Owens to CM Punk, they have nothing but great things to say about Christopher Daniels. Like, I think Christopher Daniels was a guy who, like, if a guy had had a short notice to get a flight, he would use his, like, air miles to buy the guy a flight or something. Like, he was just a very generous guy. Certain, t- certain people have a decency about them that makes it hard for them to even act evil. Yeah, like Daniel Bryan, too. There's this essential, da- or I guess Brian Daniels, and I shouldn't call him Daniel Bryan when it's a Ring of Honor podcast, but right. there's an essential essential Brian Danielson-ness that show, shines through him no matter what he's trying to act like. Like, he's a guy that can't quite help but ever be at least part of himself, I feel like. Yes, true. But going back to the promo, we go quickly to Xavier next. He point He's facing Samoa Joe tonight, and he points out that Samoa Joe lost to Loki in Ring of Honor while he beat Loki in Ring of Honor, so... Xavier's a big fan of mixed martial arts math, apparently. the If I beat this guy and you lost to him, then I am automatically better than you, philosophy. And then finally, Allison Danger sends a message to Steve Carino, saying the prophecy hasn't forgotten him either. And the promo ends, and Ring of Honor does their usual, the camera's still rolling thing. And for some reason, even though this has happened a million times, the prophecy doesn't seem to be aware that the camera might still be rolling so daniels immediately loses his cockiness once he thinks the cameras are off and he asks xavier if he's really sure he can handle joe tonight saying that joe's one of the hardest hitters he's ever been in the ring with xavier says he can handle it although maybe he says it a little less confidently than he would have if he thought the promo was on tape then daniels realizes the camera's still rolling and shoes the camera guy away i still think that gabe way overdoes the whole like the camera's catching things that shouldn't be caught on camera stuff. But this was kind of a cute use of it, like that the, you know, the heels put up a good front, but secretly in private, they're more scared of Joe than they're willing to admit. Yeah, I liked it. Um, yeah, it, it, but it is a trick that he tries to go back to too many times, pretty much for as long as he's in charge. Yeah, some of these Gabe courts aren't even bad things like this. It's good. It's just he uses it too much. Exactly. But but it's not a bad it's not a bad thing when it's used like this. Right. So we start we kick off in terms of matches with a four corner survival match. Alex Arion taking on Dixie, who is escorted to the ring by Hijinks and Lit, versus Matt Stryker versus BJ Whitmer, and BJ Whitmer wins this match in eleven twenty five after he pins Dixie with an Exploder ninety eight. That's the uh, rich clust rich wrist clutch. Exploder, I just had a stroke. Um, oh, no. It, that June Akiyama used. What's, um, how do I call emergency services in uh, in, in uh, Canada? What, what, what's the number? I yeah. don't know. It's 411. Um, Matt, before I give it to you and try and recover from a blockage of blood flow to my brain, mm. uh, I'll note, before I ask for your thoughts, one thing the Ring of Honor site, website said before these two shows that happened during this one week, before Expect the Unexpected in this show, they were on their website, Alex Arion will really be given a chance to impress in March as he heads into ECWA Super 8 Tournament. Um, I'll let you talk about if you think Alex Arion was really given a chance to impress. And also, I'll point out, apparently, according to The Observer, Alex Arion, poor sad guy that he is, 
broke his nose during this match, and this was his final match in Ring of Honor. Uh, so, well, Matt, how what did you think of the match? Was it better than the fate of Alex Arion? Well, I mentioned, like, the one thing I said is match, of a, match is kind of a mess when Alex Arion is in. Um, uh, at the beginning, he didn't really stand out to me as being the surprising member of the match. It was Dixie, where I was like, huh, interesting person to be in this mix, because uh, he's usually in a very different kind of mix. Um, but, you know, it was it was all right. I mean, the crowd you know, was, was very hot for it. Like I said, his first time back in the, in the building, their home base in three months. Um, one thing that I'll note early is that they, uh, they listed their top five rankings. Classic WCW, NWA style. Um, number one contender being the Samoa Joe. Number two contender being CM Punk. Number three, Low Key. Number four, American Dragon. And number five, AJ Styles. And um, I wonder what happened to any of those guys. <laughs> <laughs> I wrote on Twitter, that, that could be the top five of indie wrestlers of this generation. Like, I don't think that would be my exact list. But if you said that was your top five of best indie wrestlers of the, like, 2000 to 2010, I wouldn't argue much with you. Yeah, so, it, wouldn't, it certainly would not be a, like a, a controversial list. <laughs> no, not at all. So, yeah. I mean, it's pretty crazy. One of those weird moments in time where it shows you, it's weird, like, on the first Ring of Honor shows, we were talking about how the like the lack of roster depth, and now we're a little over a year in, and they can just randomly have a top five that good. Yeah, I like I'm gonna like uh, I guess early it's early in the show to say this, but ROH during this particular time period was really good. They had lots of good wrestlers. I think that well, we'll talk about the booking as it goes on, and I'll and I'll try to come back to that point later. But that that list right there is a uh, is a pretty good indication of what they had going for them at this point in time um but i so so as far as arian um i don't know the stuff that he does is it definitely didn't stand out to me in any sort of positive way um and when whitmer and striker got in the ring and i know people you know think of them as kind of generic you know pro wrestle fighter stiff guy um kind of like um was simulating, uh, you know, strong style, but I thought the match was much better when they were in. They, they, they were their execution was just a lot better. Um, their intensity was good. They didn't, you know, they don't have great characters, but not every match has to have that. And I thought they did a good job. I thought Dixie looked kind of lethargic. I also, the thing, like, there was some of the stuff about the booking that I thought was silly. Is some of the inconsistency, like hijinks and lit are at ringside, and Gabe is on commentary, like. Um, you know, I don't know who these two guys are, but like, what are they doing here? But how come, unlike with Homicide's guys, when they come over the railing, how come uh, Hijinks and Lit, he's not like, get them out of the building! What are they <laughs> doing here? They don't have the right to be here. If he doesn't know who they are, if they don't have, like, licenses to be at ringside, what makes them different from um, Julius Smokes and uh, Louis Ramos, who come later? Just something I thought of. Um, no, that's a good point, actually. Yes, I, uh, I'm uh, very particular with my Ring of Honor booking. Especially when you always act like these are horrible druggies like that are ruined their lives. It wasn't like, oh, this is a guy we didn't expect, but he's a good wrestler. It was always like, oh, I hate these trust fund babies. Like, yeah. But yet he, he doesn't freak out about their mere existence. That seems like every show there's eight new members of Special K that randomly show up to wrestle. Yeah. So why, does, why does Special K get special privileges on who they get to bring to ringside? Hmm. All right. Mm. I, I, I sense a conspiracy going on. Um, so, so I'm trying to look, think of some some highlights of the match because it was it was it was not terrible. 
Um, it was it was a pretty. It had some good stuff, especially from Whitmer and Stryker. Um, there's a, there's a moment where Dixie and Arion do like a double body block on each other, which I didn't think looked particularly good. Um, so that's when a Whitmer and Stryker get in the ring, and you know they're chopping the crap out of each other, which of course you'd expect from these guys. Stryker hits the Death Valley driver out of nowhere, does an over-the-head powerbomb, um, or Arian does that on Dixie, but Whitmer makes the save. Uh, Stryker gets the ankle lock on Arian, and Dixie breaks it up, but he, he does his top rope Rana, which is very sloppy. And then um, um, uh, Whitmer does the Exploder 98 and wins it. Um, I would describe the match as indie-rific and a mess, but short and fairly entertaining, and the crowd was hot for it. So short, indie-rific, a mess, entertaining. <laughs> be, this, the, be the adjectives. This was an example, I think a perfect example of why I hate these random, that we're going to start seeing here in 2003 at this point, these random mandated four-ways. Like, with scrambles, I know why they're there, and I enjoy them, because... The scramble conceit is it's just there for crazy high-flying spots. That's even what the announcers tell you. Generally, gay books guys that are good at those matches. Occasionally, you'll see a team like the Carnage Crew get slotted in. But even in the last show, we saw they did pretty good in a scramble. But the match is tailored to fit the guys that are booked for it. I feel like so many of these four-ways, it's just... It's Gabe using leftovers. It's like when you are going to make a casserole and you open up your fridge and just like, uh... I guess mushrooms and pineapple and sausage go good together with a cream of mushroom soup. Like, it's just random, like, whatever's left on the card, some of these things. And if you look at this, like, these four ways, I, I think back to something I, I heard in a Brian, Brian Danielson shoot interview where he was talking about how his favorite matches were singles matches, and then he, like, tags a little less, and then he, like, I think, like, uh, multi-man matches a little less, even more, because the more people you have in the ring, the more in the match, the more ideas have to like be tossed around and more voices have to agree on stuff. And I feel like what happens with a lot of these four ways is because you've got four guys in there and they're all trying, usually in four ways like this, they're guys trying to make a name for themselves. What happens is you get the same match every time where it's kind of like a scramble where it's everyone just doing going in like, all right, you do your two spots to look good. I'll do my two spots to look good. We'll have a bunch of near falls at the end. And I feel like for scramble, again, that's good because normally they book guys that are suited for that kind of match. But here, that's not playing to match striker's strengths, who's a you know a colorless like take it to the mat technical wrestler. That's not really playing to BJ Whitmer's strengths. That's not playing to Alex Arion's if he has strengths. And Dixie is in the ring with those three guys. And I'm a big Dixie fan. I think this is the worst he's looked so far. I think he looks. I don't know if it's just him having a rough night or if he didn't gel with those three, but I didn't think he looked particularly good in this match. And these are the kind of matches, like, the second they are over, you don't remember anything. No one gets more over because of this match. And it's not a particularly, like, I thought it was average, but... Um, I would say in some ways below average. Yeah, and the other thing is, like I had to look it up just because I want I had the hunch this was it. BJ Whitmer has had three ring of matches in Ring of Honor at this point. All three have been four ways. Yep. Like that, that's a weird way to debut a guy. Uh, yeah. Well, I think probably to 
the way they were thinking about booking back at the time, it probably wasn't a weird way to book a guy. It was just like, oh, it's a four-way, you know? That's one of the, one of the things that we do. And he's the king of the four-ways or something like that. Um, <laughs> which actually, I think they sort of do that with him <laughs> later on. Like sort of that he's just really good at the four-ways. Yeah, that might them be making a lemonade. Not out of lemons, but just... They made lemonade out of a weird contrivance they maybe weren't aware of to begin with. That boy, we sure are putting this BJ guy in a lot of four ways. Uh, <laughs> think, about, yes, think about what you just said. Yeah, yeah, you could. <laughs> if you have a through the year soundboard, you just got your new hot quote for 2018. But um, I, um, I sort of see the point of the matches. Like they sort of they 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 have two versions of it. There's the opening match version, which is short. And it's bam, 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 just a bunch of moves. Then they sort of have the um, upper, like, card, you know, the the top carter version of the same thing, where it's like um, they, it's it's they have the same kinds of finishes with the with the bam, 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 but they also try to weave in more intricate storytelling in it. Um, I don't know if either are particularly great, but every once in a while. They hit on something good with it. And I think that they think as far as the opening match, it's just like, okay, well, we'll get the guys out there and they have the opportunity to just be, just do moves and be entertaining. And it's sort of the similar to the, uh, the scramble concept, but maybe they, they put more emphasis on the, uh, the big moves, um, like high, hard hitting moves as opposed to the high flying moves. I get the point. It's, they're not easy to be memorable, to have memorable versions of it. But I, I, I can understand why they think it's a good idea, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I sympathize with their plight because I know if I was a brand new guy trying to make a name in Ring of Honor and they said I'm booked in a four-way, if I was in a pre-match meeting with the other three guys, I know I would do exactly what these guys did, which is just like, all right, everyone gets three minutes to do stuff. Yeah. You know, you, like, I, I wouldn't want you know, to monopolize the match for myself, and I'm sure they wouldn't be happy if I said that's what we should do. So everyone, a lot of these matches are going to end up the same way, which is everyone gets a couple minutes to show off what they can do, which is going to make it a very specific kind of match that doesn't always play. Again, I think a match like the Matt Striker versus Chad Collier matches were much better at showing off a new guy like Matt Striker's um, what what he what the good things he brings to a ta- to the table because it's just one guy he has to work with one guy's ideas he has to work with he's an opponent m- much more suited to what striker likes to do and he doesn't have to share the spotlight with three other guys he just has to share it with one guy so if they had so, alex arion versus matt striker maybe alexander arion would be one of the guys we're talking about today in uh in the wwe <laughs> Well, going to uh, obviously now we go into our half an hour career Ring of Honor career retrospective of Alex Arion, but <laughs> I'll, I'll say this: like he hasn't looked great in what I've seen him, but I don't think he's looked terrible. But here's the thing: like if you ask me after watching all four or five Alex Arion performances that have been in Ring of Honor, like what kind of wrestler is he? I can't tell you. Like no. I he, partly probably because of how he's wrestled, but also because of the way often ring of honor would highlight some of these, like not super hot new names. Like I don't really even know how to judge Alex Arion, even after seeing him in multiple ring of honor matches, which well, again, it shows you that a lot of these multi-man matches aren't great ways to show talent off. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I guess you're right. <laughs> I was going to try to make the case, but I'm not going to, I mean, it's possible. I just don't think it happens often. I will say, the crowd liked this more than I liked it. Like you said, the crowd was really hot for this. This was the kind of reaction 
I think you get when you haven't been in a town for a while and they're starved to see you, like any wrestling at all. Like, we're just so excited. We're getting to see a match again. We've been looking forward to Ring of Honor for months. Um, it, was Matt Stryker, the, it was one of the most indie-rific matches that I've seen in ROH in a while. I will say that. Matt, Matt Stryker got surprisingly loud reactions. Like, he got chants during this match for Matt Stryker. I think people and- like the whole unibrow thing. <laughs> Gabe doesn't, but the fans do. But I felt bad because it felt like that this should have been Stryker's match to win because of that reaction and because I think he had lost both matches to Collier, I think. And even afterwards, I thought, oh, Matt didn't win. And then the camera shows he his mouth is pretty badly busted open after this match. It looks like he has a big old mouth of cherry Kool-Aid after this match. So no, He really didn't win then. Yeah. So, yeah, Alex Arion breaks his nose, Matt Stryker busts his mouth open, and BJ Whitmer wins. And Dixie doesn't look good for once. So, we go next to a Mikey Whipwreck uh, promo in the ring, and it's cut mid-promo, so I don't know if that's for time, or they just didn't didn't care for the promo, but... He's talking to his former students, the SAT and Quiet Storm, but it turns out it's all a setup to allow his new friend, Special K, to ambush them, which leads to an impromptu six-man tag scramble match of Special K of Angel Dust, Deranged and Izzy, with Mikey Weprick at in their corner, defeating Quiet Storm and the SAT in 6 minutes, 26 seconds, with a triple pinfall after Whipwreck runs in the ring and hits all his former students with whippersnappers, which is... Basically a stunner. So it's 626 scramble match. There's not a ton to talk about, but I felt like contrasting it with the last match, I got exactly what I was expecting here. You know, it's sloppy. It's fast. It's never boring. It, it, it's exactly what, I mean, I've seen better scramble matches, but it's exactly what, what you would expect from this kind of match. It, I was never bored. Uh, I'll note, I, I feel sometimes bad because I rip on the SAT so much, but couple funny things relating to the SAT in this match. Um, Jose, the fit Maximo, wrestled the whole match with his tights pulled down around his waist so everyone could see that he was fit. Well, Joel, the chubby Maximo, um, did not wrestle with his tights down, so that made me go, aw, uh-huh. chunky Maximo. Like, <laughs> your, your body's yeah. showing you up. But, Everyone's body is beautiful. That's my um, sense. <laughs> yeah, just pay heed to Matt and Christina Aguilera. But the Maximos, um, they were pretty over here, actually, and they never even did their Spanish fly. So pretty impressive in that sense where if you, I think the last show where they wrestled the whole match and then they had like a contrived post-match segment where they just Spanish fly to guy because they knew the crowd wanted to see a Spanish fly. So I think maybe it's because, you know, Philly has seen them a lot. They don't feel like they have to show you the Spanish fly on every single show they do. So it's just probably nice for them. Um, oh, the other thing was that the, the SAT, I mean, this match was sloppy, like you'd expect, but the SAT, again, these guys, this is supposed to be the kind of match they thrive in. They nearly killed poor Izzy on a double team ace crusher spot where like they didn't get Izzy's head high enough. It nearly hit the canvas first. Um, Joel at one point does one of those repeated power bomb spots where you hold on and you power bomb a guy over and over again. And he does that to Izzy, one of the lightest guys on the roster. And if you watch Joel here, every power bomb looks progressively tougher and tougher for him. At the end, it's like he just goes, fuck it. And he drops Izzy right on his head, like a Ganso bomb, like Kawada did to Masawa where, and I just reminded of that quote that, uh, 
Daniel, Christopher Daniels gave, gave above the SATs versus him and Morgan, which was like, yeah, the SAT were blown up and they really needed to work on their cardio. Like, this is only a few months removed from that. When I watched something like that, where you can't even do your signature spot on a pretty light guy, I would imagine, like, you probably should hit the gym a little bit more. But still, overall, like, six minutes. Not the best scramble, but perfectly enjoyable brain candy. And I know how much you love candy for what it is. Uh, at least in my opinion, what did you think? I think I liked the match more than you did. Like, I, I wrote, this is my, my exact word was, insane mess, but so fast and so many cool moves that I loved it. It was just like, boom, boom, boom. You know, it was totally sloppy, but it was like, the scramble format saved it. Because it was just, we can do whatever we want. And as long as we keep the pace up and there's not too many awkwardness, there's too much awkwardness, it'll be good. And the cra- as long as the crowd is hot for it, because I think the crowd really makes these matches. If they're reacting to the craziness and not numb to it, that makes a big difference. You know, they do this, like, I, you pretty much mentioned all the big moves, so I don't really have too much to add as far as, like, play-by-play. But, like, there was some crazy three-way wheelbarrow thing, triple team that on Izzy that I couldn't, can't even explain. There's the three amigos brain buster on Deranged, and then the third one was, like, a powerbomb. Um, just also, you know, storm, storm Cradle Driver, just all sorts of cool stuff. And, you know, these guys, this is what they do. This, they do it well. Um, so I really liked it. There was not a ton to it, but I liked it. Um, there's a part where my, where, um, I guess what the, all the whippersnappers that Mikey Whipreg hit, that was kind of entertaining. Um, but as far as the, the big moment in the match, the big angle that definitely pays off, um, <laughs> is that, uh, after the match, Slugger comes in, hits a body bag on Quiet Storm, and then another bigger black guy in a suit comes out through the crowd. Like, he was kind of standing in the crowd just like Slugger had been. So I guess he's part of some organization that puts men in suits to stand in crowds if they're above a certain height. They're part of the Men's Work Warehouse or whatever the the Suits for Men Club or whatever it was. Men's Warehouse, but... Yeah, they're going to love the way they look. They guarantee it. Yes, and there's, there's, I guess, a subdivision of that warehouse that stands in crowds in uh, gymnasiums. And uh, he came out, and he did a stare down with Slugger. And um, I guess uh, they took off their sunglasses at the same time <laughs> because that's that's the that's when you know they're getting serious. And uh, Special K pulls Slugger away, and uh, and that's about it. I uh, I am very much looking forward to see how this pays off. <laughs> I would love to know why they put so much time into Slugger. Yeah. Like, like why i mean they put so much into him for so no pay like so little payoff it's so it's so weird and as like matt described the segment perfectly but this this other guy that comes to the ring he's dressed just like slugger the suit and the sunglasses the only difference is he's actually a little bit taller even than slugger a lot taller actually yeah maybe like what three or four inches do you think i'm horrible judging yeah i would i would say so but but he's bald instead of having the dreadlocks. And in my notes, I just I'm looking at my notes right now. I wrote they have a stare down and simultaneously take their shades off, which God help me, kind of gets a reaction. Like oh yeah, that's the crowd kind of liked it. Yeah, that's what I'm gonna say. As much as we joke about this, the crowd did like that moment. You know. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I think they also probably were hoping that 
something was going to come of it. Um, <laughs> yeah, nothing comes of it. Yeah. I, I'm trying to remember, I guess we'll find out, if they do any more with this at all. Uh, yeah, I don't remember either, but you know what? Even though I don't remember where this goes, I'm going to stand by what I just said. Nothing comes of it. Yes, that is because, that that is true. Yeah. Um, if they do anything else, it's just another tease like this. That's about yeah, as far like, as it goes. Well, I don't I don't think if we ever even find out who that other guy is, do we? N- yeah, there's no like, oh, this is the Kane to Slugger's Undertaker moment where yeah. brothers separated by tragedy. I um, felt more like a giant Gonzalez kind of thing. <laughs> I would love to see Slugger in a, just a big old hairy bodysuit. <laughs> but well, <laughs> there, there, there is another um, a, a pull quote for uh, the highlight reel. <laughs> Dear God, no. Uh, the camera at the end of the segment, like um, Gabe tries another interesting little production thing where rather than cut to a segment, the camera like at the end of the Slugger brother from another mother segment just zooms on into the crowd because we see that Gabe, while this segment was going on is getting into a confrontation, a verbal confrontation with some uh, homicides, rioting friends like Julia smokes. He leaves so that the security can talk to them and dear God, they're trying to tease a riot for the third show. (laughs) Like not huge here, but they're trying to still kind of get heat off of, you know, what, they're still trying to wring out the last bit of water out of this soggy towel that they have of an angle. Philly deserves a riot. <laughs> you get a riot, and you get a riot. But I, I, what I don't get is, like, Gabe seems to have personal animus toward the group and towards Homicide's crew that's feuding with the group. So it, it feels like, like he should probably just ban everybody involved in either of those two cr- crews. The thing about these angles is it always makes the Ring of Honor look like the least powerful company in the world where, you know, Gabe during some of these angles will be like, edit this guy off the tape, or they'll talk about firing C.W. Anderson, and then he just comes back and they act like they're powerless to stop it. Or people riot and they just keep breaking into buildings. Like, Ring of Honor can't stop anything, apparently. It's just funny when you watch how many of those things add up in a short period of time. I agree. All these little exceptions that, to, you know, on their own are just, eh, it's pro wrestling. But then when a bunch of them happen within the span of a few shows, you're like, boy, Gabe, like, you're having a tough time, aren't you, buddy? Like, Yep, he's the uh, fake Gabe is bad at his job. Real Gabe is, <laughs> real Gabe is good at it. Yeah, he's, he's doing pretty good right now. But yeah. so we'll have more writing, semi-writing fun later, but... Um, I'm going to cover this match first, too, just because I think it works better for the order. But our next match is the Backseat Boys, Johnny Cashmere and Trent Acid, defeating the Ring Crew Express of Dun & Marcos in 5 minutes and 19 seconds via another multi-pinfall. This is a double pinfall after they T-gimmick doing their uh, two-man crucifix powerbomb. They did that to Marcos on top of Dun and then pinned them both. Um... This match, Gabe starts on commentary saying that the Backseat Boys have signed Ring of Honor deals, so they'll be regulars on most shows from here on out. And this match is mostly just a short showcase for them, but they give the Ring Crew Express just enough offense, and it lasts just long enough where I feel like it doesn't feel like a 100% squash. Although it's still, clearly, this match is to show off um, the Backseat Boys. 
uh, there's it's a bit sloppy. I mean, I'm a Ring Crew Express fan, but this is enough like the Dixie thing earlier. It's a guy I, I, I like that. I think this there were some really sloppy moments in this match, and I think they might have been more due to the Ring Crew Express, sadly. But I will note that Dunn does a surprisingly lengthy delayed suplex on the outside on Johnny Cashmere. And one, that's going on a hard, like, wood basketball floor. And two, like, you don't expect to see Dunn, of all people, skinny old Dunn, doing, like, a lengthy delayed suplex. So good on him for doing that. Maybe not, in, it doesn't quite fit the persona of the Ring Crew Express, but I was like, oh, that's pretty cool. I didn't expect he could do that or would do that. Um... I thought it was sloppy and probably as a wrestling match below average, but again, kind of like the scramble, it was so, f I think what you said about the scramble kind of applies here, which is it's so fast that like the speed adds, it's a quick match. They move at a fast clip. It's not, even if it's below average in some technical aspects, it's not boring, just kind of a mess. And the one thing I want to talk about is I feel like the backseat boys, they remind me a lot of the young bucks where they're trying to marry a lot of comedy with, with like cutting state art, cutting edge state of the art um, for the for their time, like indie high spot wrestling, and seemingly, seemingly kind of like the young bucks get on the internet. When you listen to this crowd for this match, they get like two thirds cheers and one third people just hate them. Like there's lots of you know backseat boys chants, and then a third of the crowd will chant sucks at the end each time, and. It's kind of interesting that they're both similar in that respect, where they got a little bit of goofiness, but they're also doing these spot matches, and the same kind of divisive crowd thing. Like I, I feel like obviously the Young Bucks are a lot better of a tag team, and I think they um, integrate the comedy and the wrestling better. But for some reason, I definitely got like very not just in how they wrestled, but again how they the reaction to them. I got like heavy Young Bucks vibes from this match. Yeah, I never thought of that comparison before, but as I watch future Backseat Boys matches, I'm going to think of it now. Um, I, I think that the match was a little bit less sloppy than you're giving it credit for. Um, I pretty much agree with you that, you know, maybe technically it wasn't the best match, but it was it was very entertaining. I um, The way they kind of start off is like, I almost was wondering if um, the Ring Crew Express was going to win just because of how hard Gabe was playing the uh, Dunn and Marcos. They have no chance here. I actually, yeah. I actually wrote, hmm, in my notes after he said that, because I was like, wait a second. But all he was doing was setting up the fact that they were going to get a couple of big spots in and almost have the back seats on the rope, figuratively speaking, for a little while. Um, you know, they, they, they do the Dunn gets a top rope elbow, um, and uh, they, and, um, you know, besides the delayed suplex that you were talking about, which really was cool. Um, they do the assisted slice bread on acid, but then the back seats come back and they go for the dream sequence. They kind of mess up the dream sequence. Um, dream sequence is like their series of like kicks and then into like a Muda lock with a kick, uh, as a part, as a part of that, they, it's kind of a complicated combo. They don't really, uh, they don't really do a great job with it in this match. Um, but they do their whole powerbomb neckbreaker combo on Marcos, which whenever I see that move, I will never forget that that is the move that pretty much almost paralyzed uh, Viano 4 in WCW when, who was Ooh. it, Ra Raven and Saturn or Raven and Canyon did it? I think it was Raven and Saturn. Uh, do you remember that? I don't remember this. I'm going to have to look this up after the show because I don't remember this. Yeah, they really mess up a neckbreaker powerbomb combo on one of the Vianos on Nitro. 
and uh, he's definitely hurt after it. Um, mm. And so um, then they uh, they stomp Dunn's face into Marcos's crotch, which is uh, always a good spot. <laughs> um, eventually, they get the T gimmick uh, Marcos onto Dunn for the win. I just I just thought it was entertaining. I, I think the Backseat Boys are a good addition. I think they've done a good job in their little you know short matches and scrambles that they've had here. And then, of course, they say they want a real team on the next show. So, who is the yeah, real team? It, um, the Hit Squad. Uh-huh. But it, it's interesting where, also, I, I, I guess I, I want to bring this up, too, which is we got to see our old friend from the last show, big giant dude with a denim jacket and long hair and shades and bandana, who's a big Dunn and Marcos fan. Made all, it the all the way from way- Boston to Philly. Yeah. And the Dunn and Marcos like point him out and party with him. And then we also get a great entrance from uh, Trent Asset because he lets all the ladies stick uh, dollar bills in his pants and um, rub on him and kiss him. And there's like six very excited ladies that all made their way to the uh, aisle way to do that. And plants. For me, They're plants. Either that or they were like, ladies, these ladies, you know, make your way to the aisle if you want to give a single to Trent Acid. Like, yeah. it's come up. But I don't know why someone doesn't do that stripper gimmick now because it's a fun gimmick and you, like, add money to every show you do. Like, it's a merch table in your pants. You don't even have to set it up. Like, you just, like, put money in my, my G-string right now, please. Um, if no one's going to do it if you don't, just letting you know. <laughs> I'll tell you, Matt, what I job. Need, I'll tell you, Matt, what I need to do that job. There's six things, and they all start with abdominal. Mm. And anyway, um, you want me to put on six abdominal stretches on you? <laughs> if I do six abdominal stretches, then I will do a stripper gimmick as all a right. professional wrestler. All right. But yeah, like like Matt said, after the match, Trent Acid gets on the mic, says they're the best tag team in ring, blah, blah, blah. Or in the independence, I think they said. Um, the camera follows them through the back curtain where the hit squad are waiting to go nose to nose with them for how dare the backseat boys have the temerity to say they're the best tag team on the indies. Um, as this happens, Doug Williams' music starts playing, and we see Doug Williams have to like scoot past the four guys. Um, and it, the camera just seamlessly follows him through the curtain for his entrance. Again, Gabe loves like the long, unbroken camera shot. He truly is the Martin Scorsese of indie wrestling. I, uh, I, I've never thought of that before. But yes, <laughs> but yes, he is the Martin Scorsese of indie wrestling. And next we've get. Uh, I don't know if this is quite his Goodfellas then, but we get a. Uh, Match with a ton of things on the line, because as we mentioned earlier, the FWA British heavyweight title is on the line. The Ring of Honor title number one contendership trophy is on the line, and the right for Doug Williams to shake those hands he loves so much is on the line. Christopher Daniels takes on Doug Williams, and Doug Williams wins it all in 18 minutes, 13 seconds via pinfall after he hits the Chaos Theory German suplex. Matt, this is a match that uh, a lot of people on the internet really, well, not, I wouldn't say a lot of people, but some people on the internet really think it's like a hidden gem of 2003, Ring of Honor. Uh, what did you think about it? I would agree. I mean, I've always, I always had fond memories of this match because when I first watched it, I didn't, I'd never heard of it, so I didn't expect anything of it. And their first match, you know, in, in 2002 was good, but nothing special. 
But this match, I really do feel is a hidden gem. I think it's a great match. I think this is one of the better Christopher Daniels singles matches I've ever seen. Um, and, you know, it's hard to say why. I mean, I mean, Daniels was really good. Williams always looks awesome, I think. But this was a chance for him to have, like, a developed singles match with, um, you know, with uh, stakes and, um, like, S-T-A-K-E-S. There's no, um, no eating stakes in this match. And... Um, <laughs> You know, and like a storyline to it and stuff. And I really just appreciated how solid all the work was. They did, they kind of do the story of the match is that uh, Daniels targets Doug Williams' ribs while, while um, Doug targets Christopher Daniels' neck. And Gabe, I think, you know, he's pretty good on commentary. I do think he calls it a classic way too early in the match. Like, it's like five minutes in. It's like, what a classic we're witnessing here. Yeah, and at the end of the match, he almost immediately is like, that's a sleeper match of the year, Kenny. Like, he's really putting this over. Well, I think he was very pleasantly surprised, too, because it's only the fourth match on the show. I don't, And it wasn't yeah. the match before intermission. So I don't think he had such high hopes for it. But he did give it a good amount of time. What was it, about like 19 minutes, you said? I think I think 18 or 19 minutes. Some sites said 19, but I think when I tried to like time it out, I think it was 18, but either 18 or 19. So close to 20 minutes, they give, they give him plenty of time. Yeah, and it's not like a match where it's all about big moves. You know, I'm looking through my um, my uh, my list of you know like some of the highlights of the match, and it's not like there's like big spots to talk about. It was just like a really solid match. They go from the mat to the strikes to they they have some stuff on the floor. Um, you know, some good holds. You know, um, you know, just like basic heel stuff by Daniels, where he's like has uh, Williams in the abdominal stretch and he's punching at the ribs, and then. Williams comes back, misses the top rope knee, but then, you know, comes right back with a high knee, um, hits the fisherman buster, and then um, Daniels tries to, um, he tries to drag Doug, but Doug, but Doug grabs his arm and just gets him right in the cross face, and the, or actually more of like a yes lock, kind of, because he has the arm kind of bent. I thought that was cool. Um, does the, gets the uh, BME by Daniels in, right into the Koji clutch. And then, but Williams fights out with like a neck vice, which I thought was a really cool reversal. Um, you know, Williams keeps going for the chaos theory. Daniels keeps reversing it um, until he he eventually gets the chaos theory. Uh, theory. Um, trying to see if there's any like real major spots that I missed. Um, now, just he eventually bap, uh, backdrops Daniels out of the angels' wings and hits the chaos theory for two. It's not like you know, it's it's kind of hard to do the match justice. Um, as far as play-by-play, because it's, you know, it's fairly basic, but it's just the way they time everything, the way they execute everything, the way the the drama built. Um, no one kicked out of anyone's finisher, and they still managed to do it that way, which I think is pretty impressive, um, even by 2003. And I thought the announcers did a really good job, because they talked about the body part work, and they did a good job with that. Um, and I wrote, after, after uh, Williams won, I wrote, Doug shakes the hand of the fallen, fallen angel, which is very poetic of me. I know. Thank you. I appreciate the praise. Um, but I, yeah, I thought this was a sleeper match of the year. Like, it wasn't really the match of the year. Um, there are better matches on ROH that year. Um, but definitely one of the better matches that ROH has done. I'd say definitely in, like, in if not the very top tier, then, like, the tier right below that as far as great ROH matches. And I don't think anyone saw it coming, just considering the positioning on the card. Um, 
I thought this match was really good. I don't think it was outright great. I was a little disappointed because I think I ruined it for myself because doing research, I knew for uh, weeks or months, like this match was coming up and I knew how much some people absolutely love this match. I think it was really good, but um, there's something just a little bit missing for, for me. I, I think like there's a lot to admire about this match. Like, like Matt was saying, it's about almost what they don't do, especially when you consider the context of this is after two matches where guys are just going out there a hundred miles an hour doing every big thing they can think of in quick matches. And here's something that goes completely opposite. It's long match, way more basic way. It's just, it's just a very simple story. It's Daniels is going to um, work over Doug Williams ribs and Doug Williams is, is going to work over Daniels neck. And that's almost the entire match. And, if you love body part work, uh, this is the match for you because they're very consistent about going after each other's thing. And they sell it. Yeah, and it makes perfect sense also why they're going after each thing. Like, um, the Chaos Theory suit, German suplex dumps you on the back of your head. So, of course, why not go after Daniel's neck? And likewise, I mean, it always makes sense to go after somebody's ribs or back because your core is involved in everything you do. It's always a little bit annoying when you see wrestlers do, like, a lot of body part work, but on selling that, like would never like doesn't really affect them like oh i'm gonna go after this guy who throws a million kicks i'm gonna go after his left arm and he's right-handed it's like that never would make sense but this like you look at what they're doing early on and you go like everything they're doing here makes perfect sense but where it falls a little short for me is i feel like just having a story doesn't always equal like great match like i feel like we've gotten into such a debate in modern wrestling where it's like where people we got a side of people going oh like if a match doesn't have a story like it's not good to the other side going like if a match has a story at all it's it's a great match like a match can have a story and it can still not grab you on some level like i felt like I didn't feel sympathy for either guy and you're not supposed to feel sympathy for daniels but um, like I didn't feel, maybe it's just the size disparity and the fact that Doug Williams looks like a bear that was forced to go to a gym and then they shaved the bear once he got in really good shape. But like, I never felt sympathy and in a match, which is about like two guys selling injuries, I, I should feel sympathy. Um, I could have used more s- spots where a guy tries to do something and then he can't cause he's hurt. Like I really like those kinds of spots. And to me, those are a lot of the payoffs of working over body parts. I think a lot of this match is just, I hit you in the spot I'm working on and you grab it and sell it. And they do that very well. But like, there's one spot in this match for all the spots you mentioned, a spot I loved in this match was a really simple spot, which was Daniels a couple times in the match. This is a classic Daniels move. Guy gets momentum and he just cuts him in the stomach and grabs him quick and cuts him off. And so Daniels does this a couple times in the match. And then finally on a third time, like Daniels goes to cut Williams off. Williams grabs his leg this time and just clobbers him with a big clothesline on Daniels injured neck. And like, I love little payoffs like this. I wish the match had a few more payoffs like that. Just things that are like, yeah, you're selling the neck and you're selling the ribs, but like, I want like cool callbacks or like you can't do something because you know, you're hurt. But I still, uh, one thing, another thing I agree with you though, is when you watch these guys again, when you see so, especially when you see some of the sloppiness earlier on the card, like these two guys were two of the most professional, like technicians in indie wrestling at this point, everything. It's just, 
It's one of those things you can only appreciate, I think, if you're watching every match on, on these shows from this era to see how much, like, nowadays, the standard for, like, the mechanics of wrestling has gone up. I think if you go back to this time period, like, these guys, it's special. They're this much better than their contemporaries. Like, so many guys aren't on their level here in just terms of the smoothness and the, the confidence they have in what they're doing. And again, uh, uh, huge props that they're confident enough to make a match like this work. And it does work. The crowd likes it after following like two crazy matches. So I really liked it. There's just something like a lot of Christopher Daniels matches where I don't quite think it's like the hidden classic. Or I, I wouldn't even put it, like you said, in like the top tier, close to the top tier. I could probably name 15 Ring of Honor matches we've seen so far that I think are as good as this or better hmm. but see uh like i don't i don't know if i want to do homework but like i really like i think it's a very good match i just don't know if it's like hidden gem good but again i'm gonna say this i ha- again i feel like my expectations did harm to this and sometimes it, when i rewatch a match like this after my expectations have been pushed back down, I end up liking it more. So in a way, me and Matt have set this match up perfectly for anyone that hasn't seen it yet. Because we've got two guys that you know both like the match, but on different levels. So if you go on this, your expectations are going to be all over the place. And you're going to be able to judge it absolutely fairly. So definitely check this out. Yeah, so hashtag, if you're going to tweet about this match, hashtag Doug and Dan. <laughs> the search for hidden gems mm. but that's um, too long of a hashtag <laughs> oh, they did double the character limit matt you never know hashtag dv thrombozos that's why i didn't have the whole <laughs> deep vein as part of the hashtag <laughs> see that's why you're the best co-host out there because you're always thinking um <laughs> there's <laughs> there's a couple Def- definitely my biggest strength <laughs> <laughs> definitely just that the hashtags and the puns uh-huh. that's but, no, actually, there's a couple commentary things I thought were a little cute, too. One was um, Gabe teases that he's like, he's talking about the FWA title that's on the line in this match. And he Gabe teases on commentary that uh, Ring of Honor might be doing something with FWA down the line. And seconds after he says that, there's an on-screen graphic promoting um, upcoming Ring of Honor events, including the FWA slash Ring of Honor Super Show. So I love the idea that he's like, oh, this could happen down the line. And then seconds later, almost as if he's unaware of it, it's like, yeah, they're running a show together. Very soon, I um I could have done this research myself, but I just didn't think of it. Is it did F- is FWA completely no longer in existence? Uh, I'm not sure. I don't think they are. I mean, I hear a lot about a lot of um, British promotions. If they're are in existence now, which I doubt they are, they've really done something wrong because you never hear about them compared to like Progress and Rev Pro and just uh, a multitude of other hot british promotions right now if if they exist they are not relevant (laughs) yeah and um the other commentary thing i thought was funny was uh doug gentry on commentary talks about there was something where he was talking about how it's like a hot building the murphy rec center like in terms of temperature and uh gabe immediately is like whoa like if you say that no one will come to our shows in the summer and uh (laughs) doug immediately is like oh no it's we have ac it's it's cool it's comfortable like like doug immediately backtracks like yeah we have air conditioning it's great they kept that in so obviously they they intentionally uh like that little exchange right there Uh, you know there there is like sort of this um 
this thing in wrestling, you know, I guess it's starting to change. People are getting more serious about stuff. But this thing in wrestling, like, oh yeah, we're 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 the, we care so much about about our wrestling that we're gonna sweat it out in this hot building, and that actually like it's a badge of honor almost, especially back then. You know, when people would talk about that sixty-minute crowning a champion match. Back at the time, back at the time, they talked about it like this impressive thing, not like this this horrible, um, negligent thing that <laughs> of allowing wrestlers to wrestle for an hour in deathly temperatures. Yeah, and um, people have. I think there's that same charm goes even today with things like uh, PWG in the summer at re- the building in Reseda. They have like in the summer months in California, it supposedly gets in super hot, which is understandable when you consider that that building is like packed with people to capacity like a sardine can and it's california in the summer and but i think that's the thing that's always i think that's just part of humanity like we some of us like the struggle like think back to um ecw arena some people took the horrible conditions of ecw arena and that was a badge of honor for them that they didn't just see a show but they suffered through ecw arena for a show too to the point where some fans years later would be like, I've got to see ECW Arena. Or some wrestlers were like, I've got to see ECW Arena, even though it was like a foul-smelling piss hole. Or um, that's another one for the soundboard. Mm-hmm. Or, or, or you can think of like, even outside of wrestling, CBGB's, The Rock Club, was apparently like not a good place to see a show in a lot of respects. And again, uh, sensing a theme here, another place that was reported to smell like urine and people wore shirts with CBGBs on it. It was, they fought for it to try and stay alive and not get, you know, replaced it. There's, there's, there's a segment of humanity where seeing something you like in somewhere uncomfortable almost adds to the story. Yep. I totally agree. You're tough. You're being tough while also enjoying entertainment. Yeah, like, it, it almost gives you bragging rights. Like, if you didn't see it, it's not that you had something to do or, you know, you had to work that late shift. It's because you weren't man enough to go see the wrestling show where it was slightly hot like I did. Like, I earned my entertainment. Just right. that that weird primal instinct to go to the ECW arena. Um, <laughs> next, Samoa Joe, C.W. Anderson, Simply Luscious come to the ring. Although I'll note now that we've now gotten to the point where Gabe just calls Simply Luscious Ronnie Stevens. He no, There was a weird like show or two um, middle chapter where he was kind of using both. Now it's just Ronnie Stevens. Doug still calls her Simply Luscious, though, which is interesting. Yes, Doug not on the program here. That's right. Um, almost immediately once they come to the ring, C.W. gets into a shutting match with Julia Smokes and Louis Ramos, who are on the outside, part of Homicide's rioting crew of friends. This leads to another fake riot, although this one is really half-hearted in execution. Watching this, I almost felt like it was as if they wanted to do a riot, but also didn't want to do a riot. Like, they felt like Philly needs to see a riot, but we kind of know this played out, because it was just basically a few wrestlers brawling at ringside for a short time. Right, it seemed like just like an even fight between, but like, but what it was over a guardrail instead of like face to face. Yeah, if you um, if you didn't know what this was referencing, like the last two riots, you would just think it was just a standard wrestling angle. You wouldn't go, "Oh my god, this is out of the ordinary." Right, it really, exactly. It really wasn't that much, but obviously they're still trying to kind of get that riot vibe. The main um, difference was that you know Gabe and Rob were involved. 
Yeah, and Jack Victory and Guillotine Legrand, who are two friends of Steve Carino, come to ringside and start rioting. Um, I don't know if this was during the match or part of this fake riot, but Julius Smokes mooned um, the group, Steve Carino's group with like a full moon here. Not my favorite thing to see. And before we get to the next match, which just, just immediately goes into... I'll re- read what Dave did. One thing I like is Dave's been so positive about Ring of Honor so far, but there's a couple things that make him cranky. And just even though he probably hasn't seen any of these yet, mm. fake riots make Dave cranky. So <laughs> this is what Dave wrote at the time. Dave writes in The Observer, they did another fake riot. It was a bad idea, although it made for a good visual on the home video the first time a month ago. It was totally lame the second time. It was preposterous to even conceive of doing it a third time. So they did. Not only that, but they did it twice on the same show. Crowd hated it and chanted, fuck this and no more riots. Now, I don't know if I heard them chant, fuck this and no more riots. And I don't know if they did it three times. They didn't try to tease it earlier with that Gabe arguing with Julius Smoke segment. That's probably what they were talking about. I'm guessing that, you know, based on he's just hearing secondhand reports. So, yeah, like, uh, but... It's funny, like, Dave does not suffer these fake riots. He just hates the idea that they're going back to the well. Now, I believe this is the, this is the final one, so yeah, we, yeah. Will not, we will not get this again. Once you get that kind of talking to by Dave, you're not going back. <laughs> yeah, it's, and plus, again, I really do think there might be something to the idea that they did the first one in New York, and Gabe felt that maybe, like, every major market had to see a riot. Also, the first it, one was not even that good. It was no, of, like it was kind of not great at all. The the whole thing that if anything about the first one was good, and I do think in terms of execution, it was the best one. But the whole thing that made it good was it was kind of novel. And the second you do it a second time, you lose that. Also, the first one, like it felt maybe a little more like a riot because there was like a bunch of guys, you know, like a bunch of guys that you'd never seen before, just guys in the crowd, like and. You know, Julius Smokes was there, but it wasn't like just him. And the other riots are pretty much just him and one other guy. That's not a riot. That's just beating yeah. up two guys. It was like the dollar store versions <laughs> of the uh, original riot. It was like, well, yeah. we couldn't afford to drive this many guys in because, you know, they all live in New York and we're not paying these guys 50 bucks to come to Boston and Philly. So eh, it's like a six-man riot. Also, so. they already on the last show somehow let Julius Smokes come backstage, do a promo. They kept the promo on the home video. So they should, if anything, they should be paying him. So and it's, they not like, it's not like they should be running him out of the building uh, with that level of intensity, uh, you know, considering that they're using his work. <laughs> and they let Julius Smokes bring a baseball bat into the arena. And as we'll talk about in a few minutes, they let Louis Ramos bring a machete into the arena. So well, they like, obviously didn't let him. He obviously just, you know, cut a... Um, cut a security guard's head off on his way in. <laughs> oh, God. That, 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 I wonder if that's going to be on the ROH Uncensored DVD that has, like, the Teddy Hart segment and the Jeff Hardy segment. If, like, Louis Ramos beheads, like, Atlas Security <laughs> is also on there. But one oh. thing that did make it to tape was the next match. The hit squad of Mafia and Monster Mac and Homicide versus the group this Steve Creel's group, which is just called the group. They're so clever. It's CW Anderson, Jack victory and Samoa Joe with Ronnie Stevens. It ends in a no contest in 17 minutes, 15 seconds after CW put homicide through a garbage can with a spine buster. 
I'll note that the first, this match was originally supposed to be C.W. Anderson, Samoa Joe, and Michael Shane. Dave writes in The Observer that Jack Victory was brought in for the show as a late replacement for Michael Shane, who was hospitalized due to dehydration due to a stomach virus. He did get out of the hospital in time to shoot an angle on the show later, but I guess he was too sick to wrestle. So we get Jack Victory as a last-second replacement. Um, well, I was uh, how did they get Jack Victory on such short notice? He's, a, he's an in-demand guy. I guess he must. I guess he must live in Philly. Jack Victory is a Ring of Honor standby wrestler. They, they, uh-huh. They're thinking old school. Actually, they, only, actually, they only had to use him once. <laughs> I actually liked that uh, dur- during the the match on commentary. Gabe says Jack Victory is a legend and one of the best hardcore wrestlers ever, but he's not a style fit in Ring of Honor. What's he doing here? I want to note that at this point, Ring of Honor had booked Abdullah the Butcher to main event a show and named the show after him, and they also have the Carnage Crew frequently doing like hardcore barbed wire all sorts of stuff like the so the idea that like gabe is getting the vapors because jack victory is there and doesn't fit in with ring of honor felt like he was laying it on a bit thick well i was but, about to say i was about to say well you know maybe he means like not a style fit in that he didn't really even bother or get in the ring until the very end of the match like he's like that was too much for him but then i remembered oh yeah like you just said abdul the butcher <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I was gonna say that that makes him even more like abdul the butcher who yeah. did the exact same thing who wrestled almost entirely on the outside, yeah. and then basically got in the ring for the finish. But yeah. to the point where I had to check a couple sites before I wrote the results of this match, just to make sure that other people were counting Jack Victory as a as an official like member of this match, because for most of it, it feels like he's outside interference that just happens to get in the ring at the end. But right. no, even the Ring of Honor website, I think, listed Jack Victory as an a, a official competitor. So I guess kind of a theme for the show, I this was short and chaotic and i was entertained by it i felt like this in some ways got across what they wanted with the riots better than the riots did even though not for not one second do you watch this and think it's anything but just regular pro wrestling but it was a bunch of guys all acting like they really wanted to beat the crap out of each other brawling all over the place you know having intensity and i don't need to think that a riot or things like that is real i just need to think that the wrestlers care enough to make that they're trying to make me think they really hate each other and this match gave that to me it was quick and i was surprised by how much samoa joe did for a match when he's got the main event later like you would think, oh, it's a six-man. Maybe Joe did a couple spots. Joe worked a lot here with the Hit Squad. He took a fair bit of their offense. He did one of the early Ring of Honor instances of his uh, elbow suicida, where he does the tope through the ropes and then hits the elbow midair. He did one of the early Olay kicks, not the first one, and he doesn't do the Olay like, call, but he does the running kick uh, on the outside. And he worked pretty damn hard for a guy that, you know, was going to have a whole separate match in the main event tonight. So I was impressed by that. And again, if you watch Joe here, it's not the best. He he was still great here. He gets better, even better as a wrestler. But in terms of his physical prime, like this is peak Joe. He's just he's a little he's a little bit skinnier. He feels it feels like he can do anything he wants to do. He's fast for a guy that big, you know, and he can fly through the ropes or run across the ring pretty quickly and hit a big running kick. And, yeah, seven minutes, and before I hand it to you, Matt, I guess the one other big thing from this match, the takeaway is, we did it, folks, 16 for 16, man-on-woman violence, because in this match, 
Homicide hits Ronnie Stevens with the cop killer. So yeah, now that's some serious violence. Yeesh. Yeah, and that's not even going to be the only man on wound violence we get on the show, but that's the one that keeps the streak alive. And if I remember correctly, when we were asking Joe, we were talking about this with Joe on the last show, Joe Gagne, and he said something like, "I don't know if the next show has uh, man on woman violence." But he goes, "I know the two after that do." Well. Guys, the streak's going to continue for a good long while. Oh, man. Um, just get the balloons. Get I want every listener, what I want you to do is I want you to get a big pouch like a, a tarp and tape it to your wall, to your ceiling, and put balloons in it. And whenever the episode comes, and don't spoil it for us if you know what it is, that there isn't man-on-woman violence, I want you to listen in your room, pull a string on your tarp, tarp and just let those balloons fall because it's going to be a big friggin' deal. BFD. Yeah, I um, I didn't really know what to make of this. Like you said, it was like super chaotic, super you know it was was certainly wasn't boring. Um, you know, lots of big stuff happened. Um, I did think it was funny that the camera completely missed the ole ole kick. Like yeah, you just see the stuff that. going on in the ring, and you just see the ole ole kick happening in the background. You see Joe running across. You hear the impact. You don't see it at all. You know, the crowd goes crazy. The announcers mention it but it's sort of it's just like happening in the background which i thought was funny um you know just like a lot of you know a lot of big moves and stuff obviously none by jack victory who's just basically choking people on the outside (laughs) um you know some of the stuff about this ride stuff it's silly like there's one point where like ronnie stevens pulls becky bayless over the rail and beats on her and it's like like, oh that's becky bayless is getting like how is anyone supposed to know who that is in 2003 like, was there any context for Becky Bayless at no, that point? I believe this is not the first time we've seen her as part of Homicide's posse, but this is the first time they've ever mentioned her by name. And, yeah, they've never given any context. Like, it's weird that they've, they've never mentioned her by name before, and now it's just like, that's Becky Bayless. And like, To debut somebody by them having being beaten up in a way that you can't even see their face and don't know what they look like, it's just like, that's kind of silly. But, you know, I kind of remember... Um, that was sort of true for like Raven's flock at different times or Raven's nest. They call them in ECW where like sometimes they would just have some random guys in it. You know what I mean? Do you remember that? Like, would be like, who are these guys? And they're just, oh, they were part of Raven's nest. And it's sort of the same thing here. It's just like Becky Bayless is just, she's just a rando at this point. Yeah, and, and that's certainly something we've seen even a lot just on this show where random special K members just show up and they re- and they know their names, but they don't really announce them yeah. or even even the mysterious brother of Slugger or, you know, yeah. as I'm, I'm now just assuming he's his brother. But like, yeah, that was something Gabe did not mind just debuting a guy where they – if it wasn't a big name, to just have them randomly show up and then get named eventually and just like, like well, you'll get to know them eventually. Yes, I yes I agree with that. Um, I said the, the, it's interesting. The early part of this match was a lot of domination by the I guess the faces, which I guess is Homicide's team. Um, you know, other than you know Joe um, Joe gets German by Mafia, which I thought was really cool. Um, they hits like a super sloppy STO on Homicide. I've never seen Joe do anything that sloppy, honestly. But you know, I think that kind of fit with the chaos of the match. Um, then uh, after the Becky Bayless stuff um, and Homicide hits the cop killer on Ronnie Stevens, which I also wrote, the streak continues. Um, <laughs> then Anderson sort of starts to take over. Um, he does a, an Anderson tradition, which I guess is um, what they call that, that arm breaker thing that he does. And then uh, Victory brings in a garbage can and 
Anderson hits the spine buster on the garbage can, and they just throw out the match, which is never my favorite kind of finish. I don't like the sports entertainment finish. I just, like, either call a DQ and, like, say who won, or, you know, have someone pin someone. Like, was is the match not no DQ? I, I didn't understand that. Uh, Especially when the match is so chaotic to begin with. Right. So I, I didn't like the finish. I think that's sort of what turned me off to it. But, you know, the crowd... Was definitely on homicide side when um, you know when Ramos comes in with the machete and uh, Julia smokes him in with the bat after there's a big NYC chant um, and he starts his first uh, uh, smokes starts his first but chant like but <laughs> right that I can't do yeah, it but I can't do it either. I'm glad you did because you did it 20 times better than I will ever be able to do it that's crowd, like rolling your R's I can't do that either <laughs> well the the uh, the, uh, the crowd was into that. And yeah. so, you know, all Julia smokes is like shtick is totally novel at this point. Um, it never changes, but it's very <laughs> novel at this point. Uh, yeah, like Julia smokes is like, I, I love Julia smokes, but he's also like a robot that learned 20 catchphrases and just has them programmed on like shuffle in his brain. And he'll just be like, you know, your arm's too short to box with God and just, you know, belly of the beast concrete things. jungle. Yeah, like, you know, blood of my blood, flesh of my flesh. And like he'll just say the same things, like, on cycle over and over through the years and through the podcast and through the literal years. Yes. And it's entertaining, but as like as you just said, it's like he's got the same 20 things and he, it just he does the same stuff. I can't imagine having a conversation with him. Because like, <laughs> like, I've never heard him talk in a way that like wasn't robotic like i haven't i've never heard him talk in a way like he's like oh, well i'm going to express a unique thought here and um say how i'm feeling in response to things that are happening you know it's just like <laughs> here i'm gonna say the same thing i said last week i i can't imagine julia smokes like when the camera shop being like matt we gotta talk about your 401k man you're not investing enough like i i, I can't imagine him as does, anything but does, what i see on camera if he does say that then he says it Every day, because he says the same things every day. <laughs> oh, Julie Smokes is very into 401ks. Yeah, it's like way but, too into 401ks. But, um, yeah, and it's crazy. Like, um, I wrote in my notes, because after the match, like as Matt said, um, Homicide's posse is furious. They get in the ring. They get talked down by security. Louis Ramos brings out his freaking giant machete, and to show us how sharp it is, he pierces a garbage can lid with it. I wrote in my notes, Julia Smokes furiously jerks off a baseball bat to the point of unsettling me, which is, again, this is something else that he would repeat ad nauseum over and over again, but he was really into it this time to the point where I was like, someone might need to talk to Julia Smokes, not me, and teach him how to masturbate because that's <laughs> not healthy what he's doing there. <laughs> that, that's not good. Like that, that's, that might work a couple times, but long-term, not healthy. And well, you, uh, have, you have to think that he's um he's masturbating as though he's in the belly of the beast concrete jungle that's just how you do it there <laughs> oh nothing God. is done nothing is done uh halfway there <laughs> um they eventually get out of the ring and the camera follows them as they leave the building uh homicide's friends that is like we see them actually like walk out the door to the outside the only, i guess the only other takeaway i had from this is um Jack Victory, once he got in the ring, he's one of those guys that, that we should come up with a term for it, but like 
He's one of those guys that's on regular like WWE or WCW or wherever. He seems like average or maybe a little above average. But when you see him in, in front of indie wrestlers, he like dwarfs them. Like he's just such a so much of a bigger man than the average indie wrestler. So when he gets in the ring, it's like holy shit! I didn't know Jack Victory was that big. Yeah, he's an indie giant. Yeah, indie giant. That's perfect. You know, he wouldn't be considered big in a major promotion, but by especially the indies at this point, which was really the island of talented guys that weren't tall enough. Like yeah. he just wars over the majority of wrestlers. Billy Gunn is an indie giant as well. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And uh new Japan giant too. Can't wait a, to see a, him versus. Bi- yeah. Abyss is an indie giant also. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'd say Abyss is a little like is, is noticeably some like, I don't know. Like when I see when I've seen him in TNA, I go, Oh, that's a fairly big guy, but I don't go like, Whoa, that's a big guy. Like, true. You know he's big, but you don't get... And he's one of those guys where if WWE had him in his prime, they probably would have made him feel small because he would have been booked like constantly wrestling other super tall guys because that's what WWE would do, which is you know, the best way to make a tall guy look tall is to have him constantly wrestle guys the same height so you have no contrast. But uh, that's getting off topic. Getting back on topic is... Next, we go to intermission, where Doug Williams cuts a quick backstage promo with Gary Michael Capetta, continuing to wear, cycle through a selection of Bill Cosby sweaters. Is, uh, is this, by the way, this show or the last show was the first one where they were like, oh, it's intermission time, and we're going to have backstage intermission promo? Uh, I, I think the last one might might have been the intermission promos. The one before that was... The first anniversary show in New York was because it was the riot, I guess as part of the riot angle, they let they left in like the announcement of like as soon as the riot ended, like there will now be a brief intermission. They right, they right. they left that in on the on the home video. That's right. I guess to add to the like just realism or something, but Yeah, well it was also just a funny moment because it's like they have this crazy riot and everyone's going crazy. It's like well, ladies and gentlemen, we're gonna have a brief intermission. Like, like Yeah, like the comedic timing there was good. Yeah, you could even hear like the fans kind of give like a laugh pop to that like at yeah. um back on that show like just like haha this is funny especially because he had like such a smooth announcer voice like this will now be a brief intermission and right, exactly. after you just saw this Gabe screaming his head off but so Doug Williams doesn't say much it's a very short promo he just says you know he reminds us he's the number one contender now so he's going to go after the Ring of Honor title and in fact he will get a title shot in two shows so Doug Williams on the move. And then next up, we have a match that, believe it or not, me and Matt have already talked a little bit online about this match. Um, Hot Stuff Hernandez and Mace, escorted to the ring by Buffy, versus the Carnage crew. And the Carnage crew of DeVito and Loke win in this match in 6 minutes, 21 seconds, via pinfall, after they hit a second rope spiked pile driver on Mace. That's their finisher. I know this is well, your turn for this match, but I do want to... No, be it's wa- your turn. Um, oh. Well, it's... I, I think no matter what... Oh, you're right. Oh, you're right. It is my turn. Okay. Good. Yeah, I, I think I kind of set it up this way because I know how you feel about this. I guess the only thing I'll say first is um, I I have to admit, this is so juvenile and some of this stuff doesn't hit, but I have to admit, I did laugh when um, Buffy uh, turned to... Or Mace turned to the camera and said that Buffy can't wrestle tonight because, quote, his ass hurts, unquote. And I have to admit, I, like, chuckled. <laughs> he was just so matter-of-fact about it. And like, I also like that because, but Buffy was still there. Like, which I what I like. He's like, yeah. so so is it clearly? I mean, it clearly was just his ass hurt too much. I mean, he wasn't sick. He was fine, but he just, his ass hurt too much to wrestle. So yeah, 
it's all good. Um, I, uh, I, I, he, like, I loved, just loved how a matter, matter of fact he was about it. I, I really did. Um, the big thing about this match that was surprising was everyone looked pretty good. Mace uh, usually looks bad. <laughs> like uh, when, when the Christopher Street Connection wrestled, Buffy usually is much better than Mace. Mace actually was okay here. His, his comedic selling kind of was on point. He wasn't great or anything, but you know he was definitely the worst of the of the four. But this was you know a fairly straight you know wrestling match. It wasn't like some wild brawl. Um, it was you know relatively short. But I thought that the Carnage crew were good. You know they um, they they did a really good job selling. They had you know their their spike second row pile driver was really good. Um, the big thing about the match, though, was Hernandez. Hot Stuff Hernandez. You know, he starts off with this big spear that looks awesome. Um, then uh, he does this big... Uh, I guess I guess it was sort of like a... Well, first of all, the clotheslines. He does these huge clotheslines to the Carnage crew when he gets a hot tag. But it's the... It's the suicide dive that really stood out. You know, it's like Undertaker-style, you know, big swan dive over the top rope. But he just does it... You know, beautifully on point, gets a lot of air on it. You know, the crowd just loves it. He just—he looked like a superstar here. Um, and then, um, you know, eventually the uh, the Carnage crew come back with their second rope spike pile driver. But the fact that you know Hernandez got to show off his uh, his stuff in the few minutes they had, and the match really never slowed down. And Mace's selling was pretty funny, and the Carnage crew's offense all looked good. Um, I uh, I thought this was this is you know surprisingly entertaining, which is you know kind of a trend on this show of matches that are not good, I guess, in the technical sense, but they offer a lot of entertainment value. And in this case, you know, if you just watch this match, even more so than the uh, brilliant Matt Thompson, you would say, Hot <laughs> Stuff Hernandez is going to be a superstar in the wrestling business. Uh, didn't work out that way to quite that degree that I would have expected from the match, but he looks really good here. I I completely agree with pretty much everything you said. Um, this is was I, I didn't realize this theme until we did the we're doing the, the show right now. But this is the night of like four five to seven minute like very fast paced kind of chaotic but really entertaining tag matches. We've had four already, and. I was impressed. Mace, some of his very, like he has the same boring, I mean, the same kind of gay comedy spots, but taking offense here, he was perfectly fine. And I was impressed by everybody else. Like the Carnage crew, I've always, I'm not a huge fan, but I don't hate them. I think they're a solid, good tag team. But the last show where um, expect the unexpected. I thought they were really surprisingly good in a scramble, especially a loke. I felt this time, this is another straight wrestling match where they don't have the plunder to rely on. And they looked good, especially against, um, you know, Mace and Hosta Fernandez. And like, like you said, Hosta Fernandez, if you just watched this match, I, I think I messaged you. I said, you would think that he's going to be a future superstar. You would think, this is the next whatever. This is going to be after Paul London. Like they, when you got the vibe that he was going to be a star, like you look at this guy here. And I think the key to it is, as you were saying, so especially now in wrestling, there are big guys that like hit hard. And then there are big guys that are like surprisingly agile. But I think rarer in wrestling is the guy where they're agile and they seem like they hit hard. Like his clotheslines and stuff 
really felt like they had a weight to them and like, oh, that would hurt. And they looked great. But then he also would fly over the top rope in that crazy dive or late in the match. He's willing to let the carnage crew put him through the guardrail and the guardrail like warps in half under his weight. So he was willing to, you know, take big bumps, fly. He was agile, but also he could still remind you that like, I'm a big beefy guy that can hit hard. Like I'm not just happen to be a flyer that is, you know, six foot four or whatever. And so you'll agree with me that he's better than Matt Thompson. Uh, Matt Thompson has a special place in my heart. I don't know. Well, yeah, definitely. He's better than Matt Thompson. Although I can't admit, like there has to be something wrong with hot stuff. Hernandez because going back to the last show, expect the unexpected hot stuff. Hernandez wrestled Alex Arion, I believe. And that was a match that was said to be so bad. It was edited off the show. And our good friend, Joe Gagne, did us the incredible disservice of not being able to remember a bad match from 15 years ago. But I take the recaps for what they are, which is, I believe them. And like, when you watch this match, you can hear, it's one of those matches where you can hear Gabe get excited about the possibilities as he's watching the guy. Like you can hear Gabe get excited. You, he's like, Oh, can you imagine this guy wrestling Samoa Joe? And of course later they announced that's the next show. And you know, he's just getting so excited and so impressed by this guy. And then nothing becomes of him in ring of honor. Like, so I'm going to be interested in seeing like what goes wrong because it's not like Gabe was not seeing what we're seeing here. You could tell from watching this that Gabe Saw, felt the way we did about Hasta Fernandez, which is this was like a really impressive performance. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I'm sure there's a story, but it's probably none of our business. But you, know, you still want to know, you know what I mean? Or again, I, we were, I was talking to this to you about this the other day. Maybe he's just inconsistent because again, the week before, apparently he had a match so bad that, granted, it was against Alex Arion, but I mean, it was a match so bad they decided not to put it on tape. So. Like, maybe we'll watch another two more matches from him and go, oh, he's not that good. Like, I will say in a six-minute tag match, it's a lot easier just to pick your spots. Like, if you can do five cool things, it's a lot easier to just have to do those five cool things. And then I'll watch and go, man, you're, like, the greatest. But then maybe if you had to do a 12-minute match, singles, I wouldn't think that. I don't know. We'll see. You know? Yeah, well, I'm sure he's, he's by in 2003, he was not a fully formed you know, amazing wrestler, but he sure did show a lot of potential here. Yeah. Big guy, agile, good clubber. Another, if you, if you like short, entertaining kind of scrambly tags, this was a good show. If he could clubber, he should have been in special K. (laughs) Oh, he could have been, he should have been the other guy in the suit and the glasses clubber versus slugger. Yes, exactly. That would have been perfect. Uh That would have been perfect. But special K would have ended up going with clubber. And oh, I'll also note that, like how he gets taken out in this match to kind of protect him. He, it's another one of those uncomfortable moments where he takes a full force chair shot right to the head before he gets dropped on the guardrail. So, um, oh wait, no, that's um Hernand. No, yeah, Hernandez gets the full force shot to the head, and then Buffy revives Mace with CPR from the the spike pile driver off the second. Yeah, isn't it cool how Buffy was able to come in and just, like, take out the Carnage crew single-handedly? Especially when his ass hurts so much. Like, it's crazy he could do CPR and everything, having to bend over. Like, 
Yeah. It, it's it's almost like you know when um those stories of when a mother lifts up a car when their baby's under it you know because you you find that strength in you when you yeah. need it like same with his ass hurting and still being able to do that like yeah when they needed them he was there yeah I mean it's the adrenaline of the ass injured uh, <laughs> lover I guess and next up injured ass the- lover that's that's what I'm saying. <laughs> That's one for the soundboard for you, finally, on this show. <laughs> but um, Ring of Honor tag title matches next. No asses here. It's the Briscoes making their Ring of Honor debut as a tag team, taking on AJ Styles and the Amazing Red, scored to the ring by Alexis Lurie. It's their first defense of the tag titles. AJ and the Amazing Red win in 16 minutes, 25 seconds, after Amazing Red uh, Rana's Mark Briscoe into an AJ Styles Styles clash. So, like, he's off. On the turnbuckle, does the Rana, like flips him off of it. AJ ca- catches him midair right into the Styles Clash. Um, this was a match with some where poor AJ Styles. AJ's been busted open a lot accidentally in Ring of Honor so far. I haven't kept track. I wish I had kept track like it was man on woman violence, but. Um, <laughs> Reading the Observer afterwards, I didn't see this, but Dave writes in the Observer that AJ suffered not just a chipped tooth, but a nasty wide cut on top of his head in this match. I didn't see that, but apparently, like, got busted up in this match. Um, I like this match quite a bit. I wouldn't say it's a great match. I'd say it's under a great match, but it's all action. It's I, I would say the first two thirds are like a steady morphine drip of big moves. Like it's it's not like breakneck. We gotta do things every two seconds, but it's a steady, like fairly fast pace. And everything they do right from the start, apart from a sequence where um, AJ and Mark do a little mat wrestling, is like a big move that you might expect from another match's like final third. Like they're just doing big stuff, and. It's um, it's really entertaining, and it, I find that those first two thirds, I just these guys are all good at that stuff. There's a lot of AJ in this. There's a lot of Mark Briscoe in this. Uh, those are my two favorites of these four. So I'm really happy to see that. And then there is a moment where about two thirds of the way through, Jay and Mark get a little short section of the match where they get to kind of get the heat on Red. They get to work him over before he makes a hot tag to uh, AJ. And there's something about the match that for me kind of stalls there. Like it's almost like felt like the Briscoes didn't know what to do with that segment of the match. And the pace feels a little bit off. And from the there, they do go into like the stretch run and they do have like the biggest moves in the match after that point. But there were moments afterwards where it kind of, for something about the pace felt a little bit funky to me after that. Like there was this nice steady pace before of move, 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 move. And then afterwards there's a bit more kind of guys trying to figure out what to do next. And like, like, Oh, how do we feel this moment and, and stuff like that, where to me matches like this, that don't have great psychology or stuff when it's just about the big moves. I don't want to ever stop and think like you got to keep me entertained, quick, snappy and steady and there were a couple of moments that I felt got a little bit, not even like botchy, just awkward in just little moments where I started thinking about stuff, but, uh, still a very fun match in its way. If you like, again, more just all action and this, unlike the short matches, this got time, but also I would say like, I still can't believe how good Mark Briscoe is for a guy his age. 
Like, he is so good for a guy that's barely 18. Yeah, was the conventional wisdom back then already that Jay was the better of the two? I think it was. Because I feel like Mark already is, like, the more impressive of the two when you see them both together. Um, I think Jay, a lot of his stuff has been underwhelming in ROH so far, and none of Mark's stuff has been even slightly underwhelming, um, as far as I can tell. Um, He really comes on strong, you know, very early on in uh, in his career in ROH. And yes... Newly turned eighteen-year-old Mark Briscoe. Um, I, uh, you, you know, I, I wonder if um, if he'll get a chance to have a singles run uh, in ROH before his time is up. Because you figure there's only so many bumps on those guys' bodies. Um, oh, that's the other thing I was thinking. Could you believe they took so many bumps on the back of their head and neck in this match? Like, it felt like any time there was a chance for them to take a head and neck bump, they were like, we're going to take it as dangerously as possible. They were taking a lot of bumps. Like, And I, I was thinking, like, watch this going, how are they still wrestling today, like, doing this? They were so young taking, like, big head drop bumps on yeah. Germans and things. Yeah, and they're still doing it. Today. Yeah, that's it's crazy. Fifteen, you know, fifteen years later, literally. Um, I uh, I mostly agree with you. Actually, I think that problem that you kind of describe uh, about the like the the pacing coming coming apart near the end is a bigger problem in the next match. Um, but um, but I but I see what you mean by this. You know, they they kind of you know there's a lot of hot stuff. You know, um, with uh, the big moves and. All sorts of reversals. Then, then the Bris- then the Briscoes finally get to get the heat on Red, and Jay goes with the chin lock, um, it's, which is like the first moment of rest in the match, which I think is actually fine if they do it. But you're right; they kind of never get that that vibe back again. But it's good stuff. Um, and during that heat segment, Jay does the clothesline to Red, where Red does a flip bump, and for the first time in a while, a flip bump on a clothesline in ROH is actually plausible. Because um, you remember from the previous show, Red hit Slim Jay with a clothesline, and Slim Jay did a flip bump, which uh, did not did not seem flip bumpable. Um, <laughs> yeah, that was the match where Slim Jay was just trying to bump as big as he could for every move. Yes. And, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, exactly. And I think that um, I think that the Briscoes were sort of playing subtle here, heel here, but besides that, there was pretty much no storyline to the match. It was just a lot of moves. The, when you talk about goofy spots, I think probably the one that stands out to me the most is when uh, AJ and and Jay are like on their knees, and Red and Mark jump off of their partner's knees and shining wizard each other's knees. And, <laughs> None of that made any sense to me. Like, what were they trying to do? What did they expect to do? It was kind of that was kind of goofy. Um, but other than that, I thought like the the finishing run was pretty good. Um, with uh, with um, kind of a so uh, red went for a co- a code red on Mark, which sort of like that flipping almost like sunset flip power bomb thing. But Jay caught him with a DDD, which I thought was really cool. Yeah, um, that was. Yeah, and then. AJ does like a DDT and inverted DDT onto both Briscoes, which I liked a lot. Um, and then, so, uh, during the match, they keep going, this is one of the greatest tag team bouts in ROH history. Um, and I was thinking to myself, like, what is the competition? Um, like, I would agree at this point, it is probably the greatest tag team bout in ROH history, but I can't even think of other tag team matches in ROH history. Like, the fir- 
like the tournament finals with Modest and Dragon was okay. Um, it wasn't even there the best was, match of that tournament, but yes. there was that there was that early TWA. Stu- oh yeah, the Dick Togo, um, Akuto yeah. Hodaka, Daniels and uh, Donovan Morgan match. You're, that actually might be the best tag before this. Yeah, it probably maybe? was. It probably was. I think this was better. Um, <laughs> or maybe even uh, it wasn't that great. But like the Xavier Christopher Daniels low key AJ match. Yeah, um, d- yeah. Uh, I, I don't know. I like this I, better, I, but my point mainly is that you're like this is not a very um, honorable distinction because they don't have any competition. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, whatever. It's I guess it's for the most part true. Um, the finish was awesome, though. Um, you know, um, with the uh, where AJ catapulted Red onto Mark, who was sitting on the top rope, and then Red did the Hurricane Rana. AJ caught him perfectly. Did the Styles Clash and won? I mean, that's a freaking amazing finish in yeah. any in any era, and you know that puts the match at another level just on its own. So I think it. I agree with you. It's very, very, very good, fun match. You know, kind of the kind of match you might hope for these guys would have at this point. Um, not everything worked. Um, the time, you know, it wasn't a fully fo- uh, realized idea of a match. Yeah. But it was. It was very good. I want to shout out something about the booking, too, which is you would think this is the Briscoe's first tag match in Ring of Honor, and they're already getting a tag title shot. But Gabe actually does a good job saying, like, he crafts the story where AJ, they were already booked for this match before they won the tag titles. And then they, even though they didn't have to defend the tag titles, being good babyface fighting champions, they were like, well, we're going to wrestle them anyway. Let's put the titles on the line. So it was a good way to give juice to this match to make it a tag title shot. But they still just did the legwork, which all it takes is saying like literally that much, two or three sentences, and you give it a justification, which is those little things that wrestling so often doesn't do. I, I appreciate that he did that. Um that makes up for what he said later when AJ and Red did dives at the same time and Gabe said they did double stereo dives, which I think would mean four dives, not uh maybe not. maybe he was like somebody had just punched him and he was seeing double. <laughs> There's two reds. <laughs> two reds and a black well, no. No Jess. Don't say that. Um, <laughs> uh, um yeah, I, I lost my place there, but no, this was good, and we'll get to see it again on the very next show. I, I, I remember now. It's actually, it's interesting that late last year, I think The Observer wrote, at late 2002, that, oh, Gabe, you know, the Ring of Honor really wants to focus on the tag division, and the next few months did not give you a lot of confidence in that, but it almost feels like right now they're trying to reset the tag division, where you consider on this show you have Backseat Boys announced as full-timers. Briscoes are now on the scene. As soon as they can put them together, they put them together. And you got AJ and Redwood, just this new team that was thrown together. So it's almost like they've got a new top three tag teams, and they all weren't a part of Ring of Honor until, like, a show ago. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, you know, just like on a side note about tag teams, and I know there's a whole podcast about tag teams um, that we've talked Back about. Back again. Yes. Yeah. But it's like when I was, you know, first getting into wrestling, the WWF just had, you know, they never really made tag teams their main events, but they had a whole long ser- uh, list of established over tag team acts, right? They had the Hart Foundation, the Rockers, they had the uh, the Road Warriors, they had the Nasty Boys, 
They had, um, you know, even someone like Power and Glory. Um, you know, and just a couple years prior to that, they had, you know, a year prior to that, they had Demolition. They had, they had the British Bulldogs. They had the Rougeos. Um, just like Killer Bees. All these, you know, teams that were established and around for a long time. And for years, I've been waiting to see a wrestling promotion that could, you know, re-kind um, of capture that. Where it's like, we have a bunch of tag, we have a solid tag team division of tag teams that mattered, that are over, that mean something. And I have yet to see it happen. Um, WWF had a couple of like shorter periods where they sort of had a good run of tag teams in the past few years. Like they had some good, they had some good teams all at the same time, but it never lasts. And most of the time, they don't even have that. Like if you look at the past like twenty five years, um, it's, it must just be really hard to book a promotion with a solid tag team division that's consistent. Especially when indie wrestling, if anything, indie wrestling is going in the opposite direction where it's about like shorter cards with fewer wrestlers, you know, evolve for a while, went to like this six match thing. PWG now even like they're always, except for maybe Bola Weekend, a seven match show where like the idea of booking tag matches, it's like, well, we're still getting the same one match, but we're doubling our wrestler costs so the onus really is on wwe to revive tag team wrestling because they're the ones with the budget to do it yeah and, and like i said they've come close at certain points over the past few years but never quite got there and like going back to what you said about how it used to be i mean remember the first survivor series had a 10 on 10 survivor series match that was made up of nothing but tag teams they had that many and they didn't have to like make up tag teams just for that show it was like no, they were tag teams like, yeah, and I know, you know, it's kind of a corny thing, but, you know, when I, I remember when I was younger, I think I might have even mentioned this on other podcasts, you know, my things that my friends would always talk about, the ones who were a little bit less engaged in wrestling than I was, you know, they would always say, oh, the one thing I miss, like, what's all, where are these tag teams that have similar outfits and have team names and a theme and stuff? And it's like, for years and years, they had very few of those. Um, you know, you'd have the, you'd have like the two or three at a time, you know, the Hardys, the Dudleys. And Edge and Christian, and like, you know, then you had two cool stuff. Like, that was like one of the peak eras. But for a lot of the time, you just didn't have anything like that. You know, you'd have where the tag team champions were like, um, just like makeshift, like Booker T and Rob Van Dam, like just like thrown together things. People like having tag teams that are established as tag teams. Um, the most overact on all of indie wrestling right now is a tag team. The one right. that sells the most merchandise and is like the most talked about is a tag team, like a dedicated tag team. But they don't have their match, you know. Like there's, they, you know, like there's no, there's no other tag team that can really, you know. There's no match. Midnight Express to the rock, their their Rock and Roll Express. Right, you know. In some ways, yeah. you know, like the Briscoes sometimes kind of fill that role in ROH, but you know they're different generations, uh, and it's just it's not the same. Yeah, and you, it, uh, it'll be interesting to see in the next few years if tag team wrestling does cut. I still think that financial part works against it, but why, why wouldn't there be more tag teams when you see the success of the Young Bucks and think, you know, maybe there's more money in a tag team thing? Yeah. You know, it makes you stand out more, certainly, right, at this point, because there's just less competition. It seems like there's always a moment where these promoters are like, we're going to rededicate ourselves to tag team wrestling. And it just, it just doesn't happen. I think that's what's happening here in ROH. And, uh, you know, I'll, I think we'll see in the next few months. It never really quite gets going. Yeah. So that's something to follow on the next few. Going now, we're into the f last three matches on the show. Next one, 
Ending the two-show mini-storyline of Loki wants to beat up Special K, Loki defeats Jody Fleisch in 19 minutes, 41 seconds, via pinfall after he hits a big, giant top-rope key crusher where it looked like Loki hurt his ass. Um, I'll note that uh, this is another match where two matches in a row, Dave writes that Jody Fleisch also chipped his teeth in this match. So AJ and him going to the dentist together after this show, and... Matt, this got a lot of time. What did you think about it? Well, first of all, as far as all these injuries, I think we could kind of, you know, go back to the idea like this is not a safe style of wrestling. You know, all these high-impact moves. Um, I think it's pretty clear. It's still true today, but it was true back then. Um, So this match, the crowd was really up for it. And I really liked the first half of this match. I thought Jody Fleisch was impressive. Um, I like the storyline that he was taking the match seriously, you know, playing on that skit before where he wouldn't take drugs with Special K. You know, there's just a lot of cool moves. Um, there was, um, you know, first of all, like, you know, um, Jody would try to um, try to beat up Key. Key would mostly no-sell and, and, you know, come back with kicks, but Jody would keep kind of coming back and using acrobatics to knock him off kilter. And Key gets a kick, gets in the dragon clutch, but Fleisch knocks him off, and they kind of go into a stare down. And the crowd appreciates like both guys because, you know, nothing that Fleisch did would really affect Loki. But also Loki couldn't quite ground Fleisch. You know, Fleisch would keep reversing and moving and dodging and they get to that stalemate. Um, and I really liked that a lot. That was a really good way to open the, the match. And it made Fleisch seem like a bigger deal than he'd seemed in a long time. Um, then there's some cool stuff where like Jody kept... Um, where Jody kept bridging um, Loki up, like he, like he was in a, a knuckle lock, but he kept bridging, and, um, or Jody, you know, kept like bridging on doing a neck bridge, and he got on top and would keep kicking him in the legs, but then you know, and he would go down, but then Flash would get right back up, and I really like that. Um, you know, I just you know, I wrote that he looked really good so far. He did the springboard shooting star press, very high springboard shooting star press to the floor, which I thought was great. Um, Starts um, starts um, kind of um, wearing a, a kicking Key's head and neck, or working Key's head and neck, I should say. Um, the springboard backflip, but then Key kind of like springboards right after him and hits the uh, the springboard kick to the head, which I thought was really cool. And you, I love f- that. Yeah, it was really. It was cool. so quick. The timing is what made it. And you see Frank Talent in the background, like he's 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 enjoying it. I've missed <laughs> I've missed noticing Frank Talent, but I did notice him there. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's a lot of what I'm going to say is just kind of a list of some of the moves because it was really good. Uh, Key, so um, Fleisch goes for the 720 DDT, but Key catches him. Um, but Jody turns the reversal into an armbar, which I thought was really cool. And but then and then Key picks him up for the Key Crush for the Crush Rush, and then he immediately follows it with this amazing capo kick, just like destroys him. Um, and Fleisch avoids the title crush and hits the German suplex. Then then they get to this miscommunication stuff, and on like they're trying to do like whips into the ropes and stuff. And that's when I think the match sort of falls apart. I wouldn't go so far as say falls apart actually, but it slows down and the moves kind of have a little bit less pop and less flow to it. Um, they still do some cool moves. Uh, Fleiss reversing the key crusher into a small package for two. Uh, goes for head scissors, um, but he drops him into the corner, which I actually thought was a pretty cool spot. Like, it's kind of a spinning head scissors, but he just, like, like drops him on the corner. Um, then uh, Fleiss goes up top, and Key hits a title crush, knocking Jody to the floor. Um, 
then uh, I thought, uh, then Fleisch hits this like weird bot shooting star DDT thing, and Gabe just way overplays it. He's like, <laughs> rewind it. It's you know, it's a shooting star pile driver, the first shooting star pile driver of all time. We're watching it in slow motion. It's amazing, and it was clearly like not what he meant to do. Um, whatever it was, um, but uh, he goes to the 720 DDT. Um, Loki doesn't get up, so so Fleisch kind of goes back in, picks him up, pulls him up to the top, he fights him off, uh, hits the kick rush on the top rope, uh, gets him up for a key crusher, they but they both almost fall off the ropes um, while he's doing it, but they maintain the balance, and Gabe is like, I think Fleisch saved both of their lives, and then Key hits sort of like a top rope key crusher, like jumping backwards into the ring for the pin, um, very delayed cover, but he gets the three count, um, I thought it was a very good first half. Second half, it was just kind of awkward, but the big moves were still good. But, like, even the finish, where it's like, you know, a lot of times they'll go for, like, that big top front move, but, like, they kind of get to it organically. This time, it was just kind of, okay, Fleisch put him on the top rope, and then Key did the move off the top rope. Yeah. Um, but I still, like, I still think it was pretty good. I think if they kept going at the pace that they went at the first half without some of, like, the miscommunications that threw them off, I think it would have been really good. But I still appreciated what they did, and the crowd definitely gave them a big ovation at the end. I thought this was really good, but not quite. And a lot of matches on the show, I felt like this was really good, but not quite great. I agree with a ton of what you said again, but um, I think for me, what this was was this was too much of a good thing. Like to me, I kind of compared this match in my head to Low Key versus Amazing Red from Road to the Title, which was another Low Key versus a top high flyer of the day match. Definitely, definitely that, the, the closest analog to this match for yeah. sure. And I thought that match was just shorter in, in a good way and like less mistakes and just, it was everything this it needed to be this match. There was definitely points where I was like, even during things that weren't like, they weren't doing things wrong, but I was just like, okay, I've had enough of this. Like I was really into it. Like you at the start and I was into the big spots at the end, but I just felt like, there were moments where I got a little numb to it. I think going close to 20 minutes, I don't think is something these guys should do. I think maybe if you cut out five minutes of this match, I think you could have a really fun, like a really great match. But these two guys, they're two wrestlers where so much of their offense is still unique and cool even 15 years after the fact. So it's fun just to watch them do their their standard stuff against each other but we also did get stuff like you said like i love that spot you mentioned of the backflip and then low-key hits his own backflip move i love that's that thing where jody flesh is doing the satellite head scissors and then low-key just walks him over to the turnbuckle so he slams his jody's head into the turnbuckle and that, that shooting star pile driver it's weird i only did a very short short search for it on youtube i couldn't find any clips of it but wikipedia does say jody fleisch does a shooting star pile driver and going to what you said i like it's really amazing to me gabe literally says go back and rewind and watch that move over and over it's a botched move and it's so botched that ring of honor changed the camera angle awkwardly mid move to try and hide the botch and yet gabe's telling you to rewind and scrutinize the move over and over again like it's the craziest thing like i get wanting to sell the move but if you actually did what gabe told you to do it would just like re-emphasize how 
fucked up it was and that it wasn't good. It'd be like if that show a, sh- a couple shows ago or whatever where um, Monster Mac tried to do the Van Terminator and fell on his ass. Like, you only know for sure how botched that is if you watch it frame by frame. It would be like if during that spot, Gabe was like, watch that over and over again. I want you to freeze frame that. Like, watch how good that is. And then you'd be like, Gabe, <laughs> if I do that, I'm, I'm going to see something different than you're selling here. But Yeah, it's very weird. Other thing I liked about this was low-key doing some of the no-selling. And it's funny, just before we did this podcast, there were people on Twitter uh, talking about old low-key history of, like, times he stiffed guys and was a jerk and times he no-sold guys. But I thought this was a match where Loki was very found a good middle ground where he would sell things like if there was a kick or something from um, Jody that didn't look great, he would no sell it. Or if he just felt like um, it was it was a strike that Loki wouldn't go down to, he would no sell it. But if it was anything flying or anything big, he would sell it. And it even got some comedy like that moment early on where Jody does something. He tries to like hit a strike on Loki and Loki just stands there and stares at him. Like that gets a big laugh from the crowd. It's, it's a fun moment. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's silly to put a, put all that stuff with a paint it all with a broad brush. Like sometimes no selling is the right thing to do. I think especially when you're Loki and you have the persona you do, if you no sell like 15 to 20%, as long as you pick the right 15 to 20%, it's okay, you know, and I, I think he picked the right 15 or 20% here. I, I think he, he picked which spots, you know, didn't deserve to be sold. Fully. It's not like it's not, it's not like Jody was doing, you know, shooting star pile drivers and he was still selling that. He wasn't. But um, Jody Fleisch is a guy, when I watch him, I feel like, man, it, his, he, he was just came up in the wrong time because I feel like if he came up today – Indies book UK guys so much more often, the big indies, and the UK indie scene is so much more vibrant. He'd probably have either a job with New Japan or Dragon Gate. And I was talking about this to myself, like, oh, he'd have this opportunity, he'd have that. And then I realized 205 Lives ruined everything, because I can always imagine, like, all these big things a guy would have today, and then always ends with, and then they go to 205 Live. Like, oh, Jody Flesh gets this big career, and then he goes to 205 Live. Yeah, like, it's funny. Like, for a long time, it was like, oh, the, uh, the, all the, you know, the, the, the short guy stuff, the height thing, is not really a thing anymore. You know, the guys are out of the ghetto, and then 205 Live comes, and they're back in the ghetto. And it's crazy to think, like, Jody Flesh is a guy, he retired for a year, I think, when he was 23. Like, it's weird to think that he's not that deep. We're not far away from the first Jody Flesh retirement. And he's still wrestling even today. Um, AEIW, uh, Cleveland-based promotion, they brought him in recently and got rave reviews for it. So Jody's still going. He's only in his late 30s. He's not. It's it's For some reason, Jody Fleisch, he's been so kind of out of my indie bubble that it's weird to think that he's still going. Yeah, there are a lot of guys like that. I mean, you know, Quiet Storm, right? Like he's yeah, still wrestling. Yeah, he's a... He, like he's a regular in pro wrestling. No, I think recently he might still be like one of their tag team champions. Yeah, so, I mean because these guys, you know, started so young. So fifteen years later, they're not that old. And Mark Briscoe, think about that. If he was eighteen in two thousand and three, that means he's only thirty three. He's younger it, than I am. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy to think like he's thirty three. AJ Styles is forty. Like. He's still got seven years now today to catch up to AJ Styles. Of course, ring years makes a big difference too uh, in the, yeah. the wrestling that you do. 
But, you know, that's why I wonder, like, if Mark Briscoe's ever going to get, like, a run. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I kind of feel like his time would have been a couple years ago when around the time Jay got his run. But you never know. Uh, yeah, you never know. I mean, if enough people leave Ring of Honor in a one fell swoop, Mark's always reliable. Like, he's a fun personality. He's a great wrestler. You, n- you never know. And he certainly, if you could argue that Jay deserved, like, the gold watch title reign the, where they give you the win for to reward you for how long you've been there, Mark deserves it just as much. I... Yep. But, yeah, this match, it was just a cool guys do all the cool spots they can think of. There were a, f- a few cool, like, I, I also like that um, when they took a big move, sometimes they'd roll out of the ring so they didn't have to kick out of every big thing. But, again, I thought it was a little long, and like Matt said, there maybe have been parts where it kind of fell apart. But, like a lot of matches on the show, still a lot of fun. And we go next to... Backstage, where Special K is partying, and a beaten Jody crawls in the locker room, and he's reminded by Special K that he just got his arse kicked, like he didn't want it to get kicked, and then they give him some drugs, some liquid from a vial, and he immediately shakes his face, he goes, like he's in a cartoon, and he hulks up and starts dancing, so I guess the message is, yes, please do drugs. The potent drug of water. Yeah, it was a clear liquid, so yeah. I'm sure it's supposed to represent something wild. But. Yeah, I, I need to know from these, from anybody who's interested, who's into drugs, what is that even supposed to be? <laughs> <laughs> um, before the next match starts, then we're going into like one the big semi-main event. CM Punk and Ace Steel come out of the come out to the ring with a garbage can full of plunder. Uh, Punk cuts an in-ring heel promo talking about why straight edge means he's better than the crowd. His standard straight edge promo. I thought one thing that was interesting about it was he actually got cheered for a lot of it, and, and it led to an awkward moment where, like, the crowd, or at least part of them, is are chanting CM Punk, and then, like, his next line is something like, um, I, you know, you can boo me all you want, and it's like, well, they weren't booing you, they were just chanting your name, but you obviously planned to, you know, say that, so you had to, but... The, the funny thing, it's always funny to hear what crowds boo and don't boo because this is, I think, the second straight show where sometimes they cheer him if he does, like, the usual CM Punk um, Puritan, you know, like, I'm strange, I'm better than you. But both times when he talks about religion and God not being real, that's the stuff that gets the crowd to boo him. Which like, is when surprising to me because I, I don't know, I'm pro- I project, I guess, that, like, these, like, you know, like, smarky Indian fa- uh, uh, indie fans are like me, but... Obviously, a lot of them are religious and, you know, into that stuff, at least in 2003. So, like, because I know for me, like, that wouldn't be a big deal for him to say that. But I guess to a lot of people, it still is or was then. I guess the difference is when you rail about, like, oh, I don't do drugs, I mean, drugs, I don't do alcohol. I think a lot of people that do drugs and alcohol deep down know it's not that there's anything wrong with that, but that it's a vice and it's not good for you. But, you know, when someone says, like, oh, you're stupid because God isn't real and you believe in God you take that to heart in a different way. You're like, well, I'm not stupid for believing in God, where if someone's like, oh, you drink too much, you're like, yeah, you're right, CM Punk. Like, I'll yeah. cheer you. Yeah. But it, it, it's different. Punk also does, some guy heckles him in the crowd. He does a bit of a vaguely homophobic, well, not vaguely, he goes, uh, like, nice goatee, that's a nice bullseye for your boyfriend there. And the crowd's like, ooh. And so I think that's the kind of comment CM Punk wouldn't make today. I mean, it gets a good pop. but yeah, It's so weird because, like, that stuff is so par for the course in the in, like at this time. And, and, like, it all sounds so bad now. Like, it's just like, I mean, like, you know, not that, like, he's a bad person or anything, but just, like, uh, it's so stupid for one thing. And, like, 
I don't know. It's just like anything even slightly homophobic, I think, just just seems so pathetic now when you hear it, even though, you know, you know it was a different time. Not that different of a time, but different enough, I guess. It's one of those things that Punk would never do now. Like, he's very into, like, equal rights causes. He, you know, supports that stuff sometimes online. So you, I don't think he would ever today, like, do... And I also think that, watch, if you would have watched this live in 2003, no one would have thought anything of this. Like, oh, yeah, like, oh, good, good line, Punk. But nowadays, the idea of, like, oh, a, a joke where it's central like point is the only thing that i'm using to disparage you is like hinting that you're gay like that's the worst thing possible i was always kind of a sensitive killjoy about stuff so i might have thought something of it but i you know i would know like this is just what things are now like and and definitely it's not the case now see i was never like obviously i've never been against gay people at all um you know love whoever you want to love and have fun but i always just like it was so pervasive at the time that I was, I just never stopped to think, not to get too like deep, but like, I just never even stopped to think about lines like that back then, like how that yeah. might make somebody feel. I just thought, oh, like, that's a funny line. Like, haha, you know, he got you. But we wouldn't think, well, there's nothing to that joke, but literally like, you're gay. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, but, um, going from there, Raven and Colt Cabana come out. Raven gets a big chant from the Philly crowd. I don't know how long it's been since he's been in Philly, but it's his first Philly Ring of Honor match. Uh, Raven gets the mic, and for the second straight Joe, makes a corny joke about how... The, CM second, Punk straight, the second straight Joe, you said. Oh, the second straight Joe. If we had a different Joe guest this week, we would have had our second straight Joe. Right. We have but a few. We have. A, we, we talked about last time. We do have a few Joe fans. We got, we got some Jays lined up, but yeah. uh, if you know what I'm talking about, <laughs> smoke them. No, actually, no. But uh, do not. He make for the second straight show. He he makes the same corny. Um, CM Punk went to Michael Jackson's Neverland Ranch joke. I guess he thinks CM Punk looks like a young Macaulay Culkin. The crowd laughs. It's corny, old, stupid joke. Um, at it's, one it's, point, it's very weird that he's like keeps going back. To, like it doesn't even make sense. Like the the Michael Jackson stuff. What is he trying to get at? I I don't understand. That I guess, like, hey, you got screwed by Michael Jackson. <laughs> like, hey, you Why? played with a monkey and had got buggered by Michael Jackson. Why but, did you um, say that? Is it doesn't make any sense. Um, at one point, in kind of a funny comical spot, CM Punk covers A Steel's ears so we can't hear Raven's awful slander against him. And then that gets Raven to ask Punk if he's trying to do Crush's finisher. And then he says something like, um, It didn't work for him in the WWF. I'd be surprised if it works now. And the crowd's like, Ooh. And I'm thinking, like, Really? It's Crush. Like, yeah. why are you acting like this is so scandalous? He's making a joke about Crush, his <laughs> finisher, where he squeezed a guy's head. Like, it's people's like, childhood, man. They give it like a bigger ooh than they gave for the goatee as a bullseye comment from Punk. They're like, oh, he's going after Crush. It's you, don't, just like, you, don't, you don't mess with Hogan-era WWF finishers. It's just <laughs> it's, it's too precious for a lot of uh, fans our age. But, uh, yeah, I thought that was funny. Um, Raven welcomes everyone to his Clockwork Orange House of Fun, which he keeps saying over and over. And it's his new catchphrase. Yeah, and he hands the mic to Colt, who seems almost surprised to be getting mic time like he wasn't expecting it. He basically cuts a very short pro where he says they're going to win. Um, I thought Colt was going to say something funny there, but he really didn't. Yeah, he really looked like a deer in the headlights to me. I, I Maybe I'm wrong, but it looked like he just thought Raven was going to say something and then the match would start. And then right. Raven was like, no, like you can get some mic time too. And he didn't know what to do with it. 
Um, Punk gets back on the mic and he confirms that this match will be Raven's rules, which is no DQ because he says, I beat Raven at your own game once in Boston last week. So I'll do it again. I don't, you know, I'm not worried. And then Punk runs down Colt saying that, you know, Ace trained you. I'm your best friend. Like, how can you wrestle us? And I'll just say, if you're someone's best friend, you shouldn't have to remind them that you're their best friend. Like, I like the idea that Punk's like, hey, I'm your best friend. It's like, really? I don't think you'd have to say that then. Like, but that brings us to the match. Raven's rules. Colt Cabana and Raven beat Ace Steel and CM Punk in 15 minutes, 53 seconds. When Raven pins Steel after he hits the Raven effect DDT on him. I thought as a wrestling match... This was solidly good. I thought as the second chapter in a feud, this was really smartly booked. I, I feel like Raven is a lot of times acts like he's smarter than he is, but I think sometimes I forget he still is kind of smart because both of his matches are Ring of Honor so far. They really have big kind of obvious like clever layouts where the big story points are very obvious and you can tell they've really thought about it. Like the start of this match... Um, Punk does the classic heel thing where he doesn't want to wrestle Raven when they're both even on like health and awareness. So every time in the first opening seconds that Raven's in the ring, he immediately tags out. If Raven tags out, he tags in. Um, you know, he bails out to the outside of the ring and Raven like gets on the mic and tells him to like quit stalling. And, and then they wrestle for a while. Eventually Raven gets blindsided by a steel on the outside and then classic heel move. That's when punks finally gets in the ring and wrestles Raven because Raven's hurt. He has an advantage. He's a chicken shit heel classic, like basic old school wrestling stuff, but I enjoyed it. And then there gets to be a point in the match where they do this big dive train and actually Raven does a double it's really inventive actually a raven does a d drop toe hold to a steel as he's running towards him and they're kind of near the ropes so a steel just uses the momentum to fly into a tope through the ropes onto punk on the outside which i thought was pretty inventive and then raven which the surprise me like raven was really trying here he does a dive too and that starts a dive train which ends with um Colt Cabana does a big, I think, moonsault to the floor, and instantly he sells that he hurt his leg. Like, maybe too hard, he's just screaming his head off, and that leaves Raven one-on-two in the ring when they get back in the ring against A-Steel and uh, Punk. Um, they bring out a, t they get out a table, uh, Punk's gonna jump off the top rope and put Raven through the table, Raven rolls out of the way. Punk goes through the table and cuts his back up really badly. Raven is then now one-on-one -on -one with a steel. He hits the Raven effect DDT and wins the match. I felt like this was really smartly booked because for a second chapter, because all during before the match, Raven says he's going to hit the DDT on punk. He doesn't, he tries multiple times during the match, just like the last match. And he doesn't get to hit it. Punk even gets to hit it on him. Raven wins the match, but he doesn't get to pin punk. So I like that. They gave Raven his win, but they made it clear that, like, these are the two things Raven wants. He wants to beat Punk, and he wants to hit the DDT. And they made sure you knew that, and they made sure he didn't get either one of those things. So I thought, in that sense, really smartly laid out. So what makes this match just good to me is that I thought, like, the fun parts at the start of the end, like, they were fun. But there's definitely a part in the middle, after you've seen so much action tonight, where they just try and have a basic wrestling match. They're working at a fast pace, and they're not doing anything wrong but it just seems basic compared to so much of what we've seen on the show. 
Yeah, I was going to say um, I like the match less than you. I agree with you about the booking. Um, oh, you know, it's very good and very well thought out. I, uh, but then you kind of added that part at the end. Like, the middle of the match definitely dragged. It um, did. And I thought that brought it down or not. So like to, it, was, it, was a, it became a solid match that was well booked. And, you know, good you know, booking the feud. Uh, some other stuff that you didn't mention was um, Punk had possibly the weakest giant swing of all time on Cabana. But it was to set up uh, a steel drop kicking Cabana while in the swing. But I was like, man, he is not good at giant swinging. <laughs> um, you know, the drop toehold of steel into the into the tope uh it was definitely inventive i thought maybe a little bit silly because that doesn't it doesn't really make any sense but (laughs) but i thought it i thought it was it was pretty good um but the last couple minutes like once that happened i thought were really good um you know the the i I punk going through that table with the elbow like he looked like he destroyed himself on that his back was bleeding pretty badly so he clearly cut himself the table just smashed into bits um and um I uh, so I, I really felt from there. I'll, I will say that his his mic work worked because you know CM Punk was obviously like a cool persona on the indies at the time, but the crowd treated him fully as a heel. Um, you know he wasn't there wasn't like the like the loud CM Punk section in the crowd. Like they this was a clear clear like heels versus baby faces match. What I did like about it was, and just the show in general. You know they had a lot of different kinds of stuff on the show, and this match was very different. Like this was, you know, it, wa- it wasn't like a garbagey brawl, but what it was was it was a very character-based match. You know they had like mic work at the beginning, some mic work during the match. You know it was a lot more of like a sports entertainment style match that was done, you know, mostly pretty well. And I think it adds a lot of depth to the to the show in that they have this match where it's like it's really like the storyline is the main thing. It's not just about the the you know state of the art action because the action wasn't state of the art, but it was just it was solid, well booked, story based wrestling, character based wrestling, and I like that a lot. Yeah, exactly. It's a match where I, they were trying to have a good match, but the first priority was telling a story, and then the second priority I think was having like a great wrestling match. I, I don't think that was their job one for these four. And one thing that I actually, one other quibble I had with the match was at the end where Colt takes himself out, he gets hurt doing the moonsault to the floor. That leads to the Raven one-on-two versus Ace and Punk. And I actually, I think you could have made that section of the match longer and maybe taken out some of the middle because that should be like where the heat happens. Like Raven's fighting these impossible odds and then punk screws up and he goes to the table and that lets Raven get the win. And instead it's like, they barely did any two on one stuff. Like they very quickly went to the finish. So True. it didn't feel like Raven's fighting impossible odds. It felt more like, uh, something happened on the outside and, uh, Oh wait, punks makes a mistake and it's over. Like, but yeah, it was the, the action in the middle, it reminded you that guys like a steel wasn't quite on the level of ring of honor guys. And that punk and cult still had a lot of improving to do in the ring in, in some respects. But I really, I, like you said, I like the refreshing change of having a, a story based match in here with a lot of angle work. 
Punk, how do you think the crowd sound for this? Because both the Observer reports and Punk in a shoot interview like acted like the reaction to this match live wasn't good. Like Punk says in a shoot interview, he was really bummed about the match during the match and says at one point he even talked to Ace Steel on the apron and was like, man, I'm dying out here. And then he said, Punk said, when I got the tape later of the match and I watched it, I was like, what was I thinking? This is a good match. But apparently Punk, when this happened, felt like it's dying at death, the crowd isn't reacting, and, I, and I'm like unhappy with this i didn't get that sense at all so i mean i've heard i've seen roh matches what the crowd was dead for they seem perfectly perfectly into this match the whole time yeah. pretty much and the azura report too i think said something like the crowd wasn't into this and it didn't feel that way to me maybe there was a pocket of the crowd it, it, it wasn't like the loudest i've ever heard but they no. reacted to stuff it was you, you know normally you know normal reacting crowd that felt like they cared about what was going on in the match they weren't like desperately invested in it but it was fine and uh, I'll also note Punk said in that same shoot interview that he and Colt Cabana both lost contact lenses during this match. Like, that was one of his reasons why maybe the match wasn't as good. Like, uh, Colt lost his contact. I cut up my back at the end. Like, all these things that went wrong. But uh, a little hard on himself there, although he said he liked it a lot better on rewatch. Uh, a couple other things from the commentary. Gabe, early on, when he's talking, like, countering um, Punk's, like, puritan straight edge stuff he's like gabe goes you're probably smoking a bull or drinking a beer watching this and i just thought about you and me watching this like taking us like both shaking our heads at the same time like gabe trying to act like oh yeah well let's ring up on our fan it's like we're not like punk you know we like to smoke a little grass drink a little brew you know and it's just like i'm sitting here eating honey bunches of oats with almonds at like 1 a.m watching this gabe um i'm not cool <laughs> yeah i i mean listen ROH fans, I mean, he was clearly targeting the sorts of fans that like to take notes when they watch wrestling. You know, I, I don't think we're the, f I mean, like, not saying that most ROH fans do that, but I feel like we're not the first guys who have ever taken notes watching this show. So I'm going to say your fan base is, by design, nerdier than you're pretending they are here. Yeah, like, I'm sure there's some drug use. And, I mean, sure. I smoked a little marijuana in my time, but I mean, not in a while. And it's, it's funny that, um, I will not, I will not condone this. <laughs> no, don't, don't. I haven't in a long time. Don't worry. Although it is getting legal here soon, but, um, time to invest. Uh, I was going to say the weirdness about this though, going to like, um, it's weird that he says that while also calling down Special K for doing drugs. Like, on one hand, he's like, these party kids doing all their drugs and stuff. And on the other hand, he's like, that punk, he sure is stuck up. Like, we're all here smoking joints and drinking beer. It's like, eh, kind of threading the needle here, Gabe. Getting a little in the middle, but... Yeah, I, I mean, talking out of both sides of your mouth, not being consistent, you know... It's wrestling booking. <laughs> and then the only other thing is I thought there was a really cute moment on commentary where uh, Gabe is announcing uh, ring, upcoming Ring of Honor matches as he is wont to do during a match. And when he gets to Joe versus uh, Hot Stuff Hernandez, which will be on the next show, um, Gabe suggested that it might be an excellent match earlier in the night. And so Doug's like, you must be clairvoyant. And Gabe laughs. And then Gabe brings up that uh, Ring of Honor is going to Dayton, Ohio. And Doug wonders, who is driving the ring truck? He says, I hope it's not me. And Gabe says, it won't be me because I don't go to the shows. And then he pauses for a half second, remembers that he's per that he is actually supposed to be the live commentator that's at the shows. And then he goes, 
oh, um, I'm the live commenter, so yes, I will be at the show. <laughs> it's like smooth, Gabe, like yeah. real smooth. So what is he supposed to, like, what did he think he was uh, in that moment? Because <laughs> he's the booker goes to the shows, the commentator goes to the shows. Who did he think he was? Like, the whole time, he, he, all these shows, he's acting like he's live in the building. And then he goes, oh, I won't be at the show. And then he remembers half a second He's like, oh, oh, yeah, I'll be at the show. I do commentary. Had a weird out-of-body experience, it seems like. <laughs> Just so stupid. Just made me laugh so hard at the time. Like, like that's something if I was doing commentary, I don't know how much it costs. I would have been like, stop the tape. We got to do this. Again, I can't do this. And he just left it in there. I thought it was so funny. Um, after the match... Raven shakes Ace Steel's hand, and he wants to shake Punk's. And I thought this was just as good as the story in the match, because um, Raven gets on the mic, and he points out, rightfully, he goes, when I lost last week to you, Punk, I shook your hand. So, you know, shake my hand now. Punk flips Raven the bird and bails to the outside. Raven responds by saying, like, look, Ace is still in the ring, hurt. I'll DDT him if you don't get in the ring. Like, all you have to do is come in and shake my hand and you can save your, your trainer that you just claim to love so much. And punk won't do it. Cause he's an asshole and a hypocrite. Cause earlier he was telling, you know, Colt, how can you do all this, you know, against your trainer? And then now here he is, he could save his trainer. Just if he just like shows a little humility and shakes this guy's hand, he won't do it. So Ace gets DDT. Raven keeps holding him hostage being like, I'll, I'll DDT him again. Punk's on the outside now, screaming at Colt, who's in the ring. He's recovered a bit, and he's screaming, like, how can you let Raven do this to your trainer? And then Colt seems to have a second thought. He tries to kind of talk or stop Raven, which allows Punk to run back in the ring. He attacks Raven. Punk starts putting the boots to him, and Colt quickly decides to join in, puts the boots to him, too. Colt gets on the mic and says Punk is his best friend, and that Raven is a washed-up has-been. And, uh leaves the ring with him so that's yeah, gets fully dramatic there when he's within turns he's like not only is like well i have to be with my friends but it's like you're a washed up husband we uh we just won the match <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's that's the weird part like really he just won a match without you yeah. like you're, that, that's when you're gonna call him a washed up husband he beat your two friends two on one while you were hurt but um yeah we get it he's a heel now so that's they haven't used the term yet. I think that might come on the next show or two. But this is the Second City Saints officially now. CM Punk, ACL, Colt Cabana. So that's the formation right there. Yep. And again, I thought I thought all that was well done of making Punk a massive hypocrite, and I thought that was great. Backstage, Homicide announces that Dusty Rhodes will be one of his partners in a bunkhouse. I quit riot on the next show. That's a mouthful. Uh, Julius smokes acts all Julius smokesy. As we discussed earlier, says uh, five catchphrases uh, until low key walks in and wonders what the hell smokes is doing there. Homicide. He says that smokes is his backup because you're too busy lately to be my backup. And he doesn't say that in an angry way. It's just like, you're busy. So this is my backup. And key says, I don't want your street to homicide. Says I don't want your street life coming into ring of honor. Smokes wonders if key has forgotten where he's from, which presumably is the streets. Homicide in a rare role for him in, in in wrestling is like the Tom Peacemaker here that just wants everyone to get along. Which, see how like a few shows ago he was the guy who was stabbing Steve Carino in the eyeball with a fork? It's pretty crazy to see like low-key, no pun intended, Homicide now just being like, come on guys, like... Like yeah. everyone is going to be okay, you know, where he's kind of caught in the middle now, but that's the story they're trying to build up here between, you know, 
Loki doesn't like Homicide's other friends, and that's that's the story developing here. Yeah, it's um, I think it's pretty pretty solid. I uh, I I don't think it really ends up going anywhere for a couple of years. But no, in fact, I think a, um, a year, I guess. We might be leaping way forward, but uh, Loki's going to leave Ring of Honor briefly over an argument with uh, Gabe. I forget at the end of this year or the start of next year or something. And I think the the last match uh, Gabe wanted to do with him is he wanted Loki to put Homicide over in a singles match, and Loki just quit. So was, he was building it, to it was it was over that or it was it like, wasn't over that, but it was like. Gabe was like, well, let's wrap this up for a while and this will be the last match. And I, I forget, we'll get to it, you know, way down the line. But I think it was something like... I mean, I know when it was supposed to happen. It was supposed to happen at the show in November. That I like, know for sure. Loki thought he was going to do it, but then changed his mind or something and just decided not to do it. But it definitely, it, originally, Gabe's intention was to go to this. It was Homicide gets to beat Loki. And Loki leaves before that can happen. And then when he comes back, he's actually put together with Homicide. So, yeah. So finally, though, we go to um, the main event and pretty historic match, which no one knew at the time, probably. But for the Ring of Honor title, Xavier defends with and he has Allison Danger and Christopher Daniels with him, at least initially against Samoa Joe. Samoa Joe defeats Xavier in 11 minutes, 56 seconds, when he made Xavier pass out to the Coquina Clutch, or a.k.a. the Rear Naked Choke. Um, it's funny, Joe at the time, on a sh- I mean, not at the time, but on a shoot interview, on a straight shooting Ring of Honor show, said that uh, he never knew at the time that the Ring of Honor, winning the Ring of Honor title was going to be this big a deal. He says, I wish I had known that, like, what it would turn out to be because he, he didn't think anyone like no one knew at the time not Gabe not the fans not him how big the ring was going to be so he thought at the time it was cool but like he would have been a lot bigger deal if he knew what it was going to represent but this is a moment in time you know this is the start of a uh, Samoa Joe is big great title reign and uh, what did you think of this as a match though well so, well first of all the uh, the best stuff you know probably in life is not the stuff that's planned. So, you know, it's almost like the fact that this, like, this, the rain kind of was a surprise in terms of how successful and how great it was. You know, I think it's almost be, you know, to its benefit. Um, you know, that it grew and grew in, you know, in its legend over the next uh, couple of years. Um, as far as the match, um, it, it wasn't a very good match. Um, I think part of it was Xavier had another concussion. Um, which is not surprising because he had a concussion the week before and then went back and did a full singles match with the guy who hits very hard and smacks him in the face. Um, so, And there wasn't a lot of heat to it. I think the crowd was probably burned out. They didn't really know to expect anything until very close to the end when they realized that the title change was going to happen. Then they sort of woke up. Um, there was some good stuff. I mean, the very beginning of the match featured... Um, so... Uh, Christopher Daniels and Allison Danger accompanied Xavier to the ring, and very early on, um, Michael Shane appears, taps Christopher Daniels on the shoulder, and just super kicks him, um, taking him out. And then, Violence Against Women, uh, yeah. part two, C.W. Anderson just punches Allison Danger in the face. With no provocation, just yeah. hauls off, like, seconds after you see him on frame, punches her in the face. And, and carries her to the back. Basically, they don't treat this as any kind of big deal. It's, like, just the same as if he had attacked any other wrestler. Um, so what that, what that did is it, uh, I guess, it evened the odds. Because, you know, the story is that, you know, uh, Allison Danger always interferes in Xavier's matches. Always trips somebody or distracts the ref or does something. And now that won't happen. 
so that kind of sets the tone. I uh, I hope for Christopher Daniel's sake that um, uh, Michael Shane didn't get any stomach virus on the bottom of his shoe, because <laughs> um, or else Christopher Daniels is going to be sick for uh, for a day or so, um, or any other germs that are on the floor of a hospital. Didn't you say he was hospitalized with the stomach virus? That, that's what Dave, Dave claims that he was so dehydrated from the stomach flu he went to the hospital, but then got out in time to at least do this little angle at the end. Yeah, if I was going to get kicked in the face by somebody, I wouldn't want it to be from somebody who was walking around an emergency room. Um, but um, I digress. Back to the match. You know, a lot of the early stuff was a lot of you know what you'd expect, where Xavier kind of hits and you know tries to chop Joe. Joe um, kind of no sells it and then chops him back much harder, and Xavier falls to the ground. Um, Joe does the Olay kick, and this time you actually see it. They don't. It's still not called the Olay kick. They still don't have the Olay Olay chance. But that's what you know the kick where he where he runs into the guy, kicks him who's sitting in a chair in the floor, knocking over the guardrail. Um, does that. Um, Joe, I didn't mention this in the last match, he's wearing these black and white long tights, which I don't think I've ever seen Joe wear at any other time. Can you think of another time where Joe uh, had these kinds of tights? I'm not sure. When I saw them, I vaguely recalled them, but I, I think I might be vaguely recalling them from this match. Yeah. Like, I'm, I'm not sure. So Yeah, I, I think I only remember it here. Um, but, you know, there's some cool moves. You know, Xavier does an overhead belly-to-belly on Joe, which I thought was really impressive. Um, but, you know, even that didn't get a ton of heat. Um, so the coolest thing, um, as far as a single move is Xavier does a tope onto Joe and hits a swinging DDT to the floor. And I thought that was really cool. And the, the, the reaction wasn't very big for it. So Gabe kind of on commentary, you know, he's like, oh, the crowd didn't see it. Nobody in the crowd knows what happened because <laughs> it was on the floor. Like he really, cause he loved the move, obviously. And the it crowd didn't great. care. So, yeah, it was a really good move. Like, he did a good job with it. Xavier does some cool moves. Um, and then, so, so the storyline at that point is that Xavier is, like, working on Joe's neck. You know, after, like, he does, like, the, uh, the uh, X-breaker is obviously a neck breaker. Um, so Joe, at one point, fires up after Xavier hits a basement dropkick to his face. And, you know, they, they start doing the chop fest. And this is the first time I've ever heard the Joe is going to kill you chant. I don't know if this yes. is the debut of it, but... I wrote that too, and I was going to ask you, like, is this the first time you ever heard that? And that's the first. It's not a lot of people. It sounds like maybe five or ten people. Yeah. Or, but but it's there, and I've never heard it before in Ring of Honor. Yeah. I so I don't know if that was a thing before this, or if these fans on this night invented it the night that Joe happened to win the ROH title, which would be interesting. That um, would be crazy if it was invented the night he won. Yeah, like, I agree. So if anyone knows, if they'd heard, if they heard. Uh, the Joe's Gonna Kill You champ before March of 2003. Let us know. Hashtag um, Joe is gonna chant. <laughs> <laughs> I revoke your pun privileges. Thank you. That is not, no, a, that's a, pun. Yeah, that's not a pun. It's just really yeah. bad. Um, so um, after the X-Breaker, Xavier like stalls and then goes up to the top and Joe gets his knees up for the 450. And then there's a pretty loud Joe chant because this is like the moment that people are like, oh, might be a title change. And Joe goes right to the knees, to the to the head, and the choke. Gets the win. Pretty big pop for, um, well, so it, and Xavier doesn't tap. His arm drops. But um, it's a pretty big pop for Joe's win. Like, it's not, like, the biggest pop ever. But it's, you know, definitely, like, a good reaction. You see Green Lantern fan really happy in the front row. I was, I was literally going to say, just say Green Lantern fan. For everyone, watch for Green Lantern fan to be, like, surprised and jump out and be so excited. Yeah. And then the big dork that, and I don't mean to be mean, but, like, 
you know, Green you Lantern. Mean it, you, mean was, it, you mean it endearingly. Eh, somewhere in the middle. But like, he's a good you know, guy. he. I don't know him, but he's probably he a was, guy. He was known for sometimes being annoying and, some, and also he timed the matches on his watch. Watch this match at the end of it. Just watch the second time. Watch Green Lantern fan. He jumps up. He's so excited. He's like pumping his arms in the air. And then like two seconds later, he's like, oh crap, like I got to time the match. And you see him like turn down to his watch and like press the button and then resume part. So it was so big. Green Lantern fan forgot to turn, like stop the watch for a second. Green Lantern fan, you're a cool guy. We like you. <laughs> okay. It's the official stance of the show. He's our next guest. <laughs> <laughs> hey, um, all in due time. Um, <laughs> That's his podcast. Uh-huh. We just gave him his name. <laughs> there you go. I named two podcasts that I don't host today. Um, so, um, but yeah, so I, I thought it was average at best as a match. Um, you know, one of the lesser of the ROH title win matches. I actually probably enjoy the low-key versus Xavier match that no one likes more than this one. Um, just because I thought it was interesting, and this match was kind of dull. I think the crowd was also just burned out because it was a pretty, you know, it was a pretty eventful show, I would say. A lot of, you know, a lot of stuff to take in. Um, and obviously this has turned out to be the biggest of all, but I don't know if it felt that way at the time. And I think Dave said live this show was three hours, 45 minutes, so... You know, the end of a longer night, even than what we were watching on DVD, maybe. Right. right. But I actually like this more than you. I wouldn't say it's a great match. I would say good. You know, I wouldn't even say like on the border of great, but like I thought this was good because I like the structure of it where a lot of matches, especially on the indies, it's my move, your move, my move, your move. And the reason they do that is because. It's unpredictable and makes it exciting. But there is something to be said times for a really good structure that makes sense. And what I liked about this was it was basically three sections. And they all made sense where the first thing is coming to the ring, Joe's grabbing his neck for a second. The camera catches that. And he's selling that like, oh, he's hurt from the fr- from the earlier match. And the start of the match is Joe just dominating Xavier. He's no-selling slaps. Eventually, when Xavier does get him down, he kicks out at one. And it's almost like a squash for the first few minutes. And as it should be, because Joe's a badass and Xavier's like the cheating champion. And then it's only when Xavier finally gets to start hitting Joe's neck that then it's all Xavier almost. It's very, there's a section where it's Xavier dominating and the neck's a perfect choice to work on because most of Xavier's regular offense works over the neck. But then he added in the cool stuff that he doesn't do every show, like the tope into the DDT, like the forward flipping leg drop, some cool stuff like that. And then you you get the end where Joe hulks up, doesn't quite completely work. Then he gets the knees up. And then from there, it's just like within a couple moves, the match is over. So I did like the structure of, you know, it's a classic structure. Babyface dominates. Some weak point that isn't really his fault gets worked on. When all seems lost, he comes back and he wins. Now, that said, did it feel like an epic world title match? Like a lot, like like you just mentioned, like a lot of Ring of Honor matches would end up feeling like title matches? No, this doesn't feel like you're seeing a moment in history. This doesn't even feel like a world title match. It feels like, to me, like a solidly good mid-card match. And the crowd... Again, I don't think they expect it. I don't think they're thinking they're seeing a moment in history. So it is a little weird when you have that in your head as watching it now, where you know how big a match this turns out to be for Ring of Honor versus how everyone that night is treating it. 
it, it's two completely different things. The ROH title means pretty much nothing at this point. So the title changing hands is cool, but not something that you expect that you're going to remember, you know, in a few months, never mind 15 years later. And um, I also think it's funny, like we'll talk about it in a second, but they count the Michael Shane super kick on Daniels as firing the first shot, you know, in the in the feud between the group and the prophecy. And can we just say that after they've done like five shows worth of promos of Daniels and Carino keep going, you fire the first shot. No, you fire the first shot. How disappointing is it that it's Michael Shane throwing a super kick like that's the first shot. Like now the war's on. Michael Shane kicked it off. It's like, oh boy, well, Michael Shane kicked it off. Do you remember how they started the um, how they started the uh, the WCW versus WWF invasion and like the the early uh, shots in that? So I guess it's in the grand tradition of the great invasion angles. Wasn't it like Lance Storm, the first guy that you saw from WCW? Like, yeah, and then Saturn at one point. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no not Saturn, because because he was already in WWF. I, I don't remember who the other guy was, but yes, Lance Storm was the first one. I definitely do remember that. And I, I think it, watching this, there's also one of those great little moments where it has more significance again, knowing what's going to happen. But Gabe, after the win, says, "You know." What kind of champion will Samoa Joe be? You'll just have to keep watching the future to find out. And it's like, you know, normally that just sounds vague, but knowing that this turns out to be special, it was kind of heel to hear, cool to hear Gabe say that. Like, yeah, when he really genuinely didn't know. Yeah, exactly. Like, oh, this worked out. <laughs> like this real, this real moment where it's like, well, what's going to happen? And you know, almost like not that this is this is a horrible comparison because it's not fitting for ring of honor but like if you fall in love with someone that's over something stupid like oh i met you when we bumped trying to grab a chicken fry or something ridiculous and it's like it's almost funny to see hear gabe be like you know well what's this going to be like and then knowing that like oh it's actually going to be like one of the things that makes your career gabe like yeah you know it, it's crazy that, again like Joe said, no one, knew, I don't think anyone knew that it was going to be like this. No one did. So how could you? Yeah, exactly. And no, I um, mean, how so, could you, I mean, how could you say something like that? It's very disappointed in you. I'm sorry. Um, oh yeah. I, I guess the one thing we should say is when we first started watching with, uh, when Xavier won the title, I said we were going, you know, that the. So there were some people that really do still love Xavier and feel he got like a short, uh, a raw deal in Ring of Honor. And but a lot of most people look at Xavier and go, "Oh, his title reign sucked." Or even people that don't really know it go, "This guy sticks out. He must have really sucked." Why do? And I said we were going to rewatch it with an open mind and treat it fairly. So now that the time's come, he's we've seen his entire title reign, every match. We've seen every match he had in Ring of Honor before he got the title. What's your final verdict in 2018 on the Xavier title ring? It was better than people give it credit for in terms of matches. Um, I don't think he felt like a champion. Uh, and I don't think he had this, the aura that you would necessarily want. Um, I get the idea behind it, but it probably they needed to establish the title before they tried something like that, and they hadn't, and this wasn't the thing to do it. And it's a shame that his last two matches as champion ended with uh, him getting uh, concussion upon concussion, so he wasn't really able to perform at his full ability. And now I think he's going to be out for a few months um, because of the, that stuff. So, you know, I think uh, 
he maybe gets a little bit of a raw deal, but overall I think the actual title reign itself is mostly fairly uh, assessed in history. I agree. I think um, Gabe did not book Xavier's title reign well. He he assumed that just giving him the title would make him over when the title hadn't been established. He, there was times he booked um, Xavier fairly deep in the mid-card, even as champion. He didn't give him always the most high-profile opponents, like non-title matches with Jeremy Lopez and you know a mini-feud with, with an 18-year-old Jay Briscoe. It's like... These aren't the kind of things you need when you're still trying to get over to the fans here as an established champion. I feel like the Paul London stuff is great. It's better than I remembered. It's I, I love that stuff, actually. I love those two matches. And it is kind of tragic that, like you said, the end of his run is so marred by these huge concussions. That said, there were matches like... You know, when he's in the ring with Loki and Daniels and AJ Styles at Revenge on the Prophecy, he's not bad at all, but he just doesn't grab your attention like, oh, you know who stood out? Xavier. Not, yeah. Although that's heavy competition, but he he didn't get a great opportunity, but he also didn't... Some guys could have the opportunity Xavier did and make something of it. Paul London get, didn't get the greatest opportunity the way he was booked to start in early Ring of Honor, but he took the most of what he he made the most of what he got. Xavier just I don't think is quite good enough to make the most of a shitty situation. Agreed. And the, the other thing I'll ask is I know at the end you were have referenced it a couple times that Xavier got a second concussion here and Christopher Daniels says that in the promo. Did he really because in a shoot interview Joe just talks about how he had the concussion the week before, where in the revenge, I mean, the uh, expect the unexpected match, he got the concussion from Red. Apparently, he didn't know where he was after the match, like lost his memory from the day, but that he was just still in a bad way from that concussion. Because like you just said, Xavier doesn't wrestle for Ring of Honor for a few months now. And I thought, well, maybe he really was hurt from that concussion. I looked up cage match. He keeps working for other indies all during this break from Ring of Honor. Really? Yes. Uh, maybe I shouldn't have taken Daniel Daniels' word for it, I guess. It seemed like a weird thing to kayfabe, and a re- weird that he would take a break from ROH for no reason. Like, it, it, like you know, I could see, like, maybe, like, Gabe just gets bored with a wrestler, and it's like, okay, we're not going to book them anymore. But you don't do that to the guy who is just your champion. Well... Um, so, that's crazy to me. <laughs> I'll say this, um... Xavier, like, Gabe was very aware of how Xavier was perceived because every single match for, like, the last few months, he's been going on commentary. The dirt sheets hate him. The fans hate him. The internet hates him. So he was very aware of how people were, like, Gabe were talking about him. So do you think maybe it was literally just Gabe going, like, look, we need to refresh you and we need to get you away for a few months and then bring you back and maybe that'll, like, help freshen you up and fans won't remember you this way and stuff like I, I that's the only thing i can think of is that maybe gabe just felt like maybe some time off will make will reverse this bad like legit we don't like you vibe that some people were having i guess it's possible i mean it makes i guess it makes sense uh it seems like a lot like it seems like a lot like we're gonna take away all these paydays from you to try to refresh you uh, i don't know it just it seems like, if I was Xavier, I'd be like, eh, I don't know about this, yeah. but um, maybe. But he does keep working Northeast Indies during this time. I think during this time period that he'll miss at Ring of Honor, he has the uh, Brian Kendrick match on Velocity. So 
he does keep working. It's just not for Ring of Honor for a few months. But we end the match with uh, Joe celebrating. He's celebrating big, but not crying or anything. Um, he slaps the hands of everyone's hand at ringside. Slaps the hand of everybody at ringside. He uh, tells the camera that Ring of Honor and Zero One are what wrestling is, and that sports entertainment is just sports entertainment. So, screw you, WWE. You can't have Samoa Joe. He'll never go there. Like, nope. screw you. And uh, we, we end the show with a couple quick promos. Well, maybe not quick, but uh, Raven's sitting backstage. <laughs> Because it's Raven, that's what reminded me. Raven is sitting backstage and says that he's impressed by CM Punk, but he's a jackass. So he stresses a lot in this promo that he's going to hit that Raven effect DDT on Punk one day. And that it might, he Raven says he might not be at the next few shows, but he might be there in spirit. He might be there laying in the weeds. He says that Punk knows sooner or later he's going to get DDT'd again. And it was one of the usual Raven promos where... It's a little too long, but it makes it stresses its central point well, which, again, they're really stressing that, like, what Raven's looking for is he just wants to hit that DDT and that he's going to do it sooner or later. The Raven effect. The Raven effect. It's a different move because it's Raven. But next we get a Christopher Daniels promo, and this is pretty funny, where an on-screen graphic tells us this was recorded days after the show, and then in the middle of the promo, Daniels screws up and references, like, things that he goes, like, what happened tonight I'm, a few days ago or something like that. <laughs> like, again, as another thing tonight that could have used to take two, but why um, not just say it? Ha- why, why do you even need this? Like the, nothing about the promo necessitated that it was a few days later. So that's also what makes it funny. The only thing is that he said that Xavier had another concussion. Yeah. I guess you maybe, maybe he's like, you know, well, I went to the hospital with Xavier. He's been diagnosed with another concussion. So now a few days later, you know, I can talk to you, about, but yeah, nothing else about this needed that, um, Daniels just recaps the horrible last week he's had where he and Xavier lost the tag titles. He lost the FWA title. He didn't win the number one contenders trophy. Xavier lost the world title. And then he says, Steve Creer was too gutless to attack him himself. He had to send Michael Shane to do it. Daniel says the prophecy will come back stronger. He teases runs for the singles and tag titles. And with Donovan Morgan, no less, uh, you're barking up the wrong tree there, Daniels. And he says, he even teases that maybe the prophecy will come back with a new member. So laying some future stuff there. Um, Daniels promos kind of, I'm, you know, he, they're good, but I'm kind of getting sick of them. When he has like two five minute promos on the same tape, I feel like it's like, all right, maybe he could take, give it a rest a little bit. I think they're still good, but I think I go back to what I said way early at the show, which is, it seems like, when Gabe finds someone he is confident can give a good promo, he just gives them a lot of promo time. Like in this case, two promo, like you just said, two significant promos a show. So, um, we end the show backstage at another zero one show, which we're told is after, um, the show we just watched, uh, on an old laptop and he's learning, reading some website, learning that homicide took out his girlfriend with the cop killer he seems not ha- unhappy about it, but maybe not as unhappy as a guy should be when he learns that his girlfriend took like one of the most brutal-looking moves in pro wrestling. Yeah, he's like, huh, cop kill on a woman. No, you know, naughty, naughty homicide. Yeah, like, uh, you jaywalked, huh? And he, like, <laughs> that's that's the level he treats this. He's, he's perturbed, but maybe not as angry as she should have acted considering what happened to her. Um, he's, he... 
you know, he's going to talks about, he's going to get revenge on homicide. And he, I think he says, I got two words for you. I think the words were dare me, but the moments he says those words, you can hear a big clanging sound because I guess at the zero one show he's backstage at, they're either taking apart or building the ring. So again, like, the night of things that could have used a second take, but... Well, especially because the thing where he's supposed to be finding out what's going on, you could see that he's literally looking at an AOL sign-in screen. <laughs> did you notice did. this? No, I didn't. Go check it out. <laughs> he's so mad at the story, he immediately just signed off. Yeah, he's exactly. Like, I don't want to look at my mail. No. Just angry. But um, that ends a very significant show, Night of Champions. Yes, I think this might be our like longest show, not counting the one where we had like the awards. I was saying to someone that um, normally when I think a show is going to be very short, it turns out to be longer. And when I think a show is going to be long, it turns out short. Like I thought the Joe show we did last time was going to be long. And I thought the show was going to be short, but it wasn't. But it was a good show and a good wrestling show, I think. What did you think as the show as a whole? Yeah, well, I think this is, I can, like, flesh out my thoughts on what I said before about how ROH is, like, a really good promotion now. You know, it wasn't, everything wasn't perfect. There's a lot of, like, weird booking inconsistencies, you know, for sure. Um, but, you know, they have a lot of solid characters built up. Um, they're getting to the point where their titles are starting to mean something. They have a lot of variety on their shows. They have a lot of, um, you know, good matches. They have, you know, the angles are in place. You know, you have the uh, the group, you know, feuding with Homicide and feuding with the Prophecy. You have the Punk and Raven thing going on. Um, you know, it's just it it feels like a fully realized wrestling promotion. And I think it's interesting, you know, that the ROH, you know, especially during this era, the early period, which it still is in, you know, like the first couple of years, it's very known as being a um, as being a, uh, you know, just like a wrestling-based promotion, where it's just like indie matches, dream matches. It's, you know, people considered it like not, you know, pretty bare bones as far as, um, um, uh, prom- you know, storylines and things like that. But comparing it to indies now, it seems, you know, very storyline-heavy and very character-heavy. You know, I go to Evolve sometimes when it's in New York, and it feels to me like that's just matches, um, you know, PWG nowadays, you know, for, uh, people I know who go to it, it's basically just matches, like good matches, but still just matches. You know, I know there are a couple of like, you know, smaller indies that are getting kind of more into the, you know, fully realized thing. But this is so much more of a full wrestling promotion than most big indies now are. It's just, it's just, it's just funny considering its reputation. Yeah, we we've talked about this before, and I said I think I said to you we got we're we're gonna have to talk about it a few more times on the show because my biggest takeaway from all the things I've learned from rewatching early Ring of Honor is that th- this promotion that was once thought of as like this this period of this promotion which was once thought of yeah I don't like that Ring of Honor shit the wrestling is good but it's way too dry this is like. If you put this promotion, the same promotion out there today, it would be one of the most colorful promotions in all of wrestling. Like the number of angles and storylines and promo segments and variety, like it would, it would, like, I think it's more colorful than, than WWE in a lot of ways. Like the angles are more inventive and they're just more willing to try new ideas and change their format in some ways. Like, and it's crazy to think, and I, I was talking to you, I think the only reason people thought it was dry at the time was that we were only a couple 
two or three years removed from like Vince Russo cl- crash TV, where it was a hundred angles a minute and two minute matches and tons of run-ins. And yeah, compared to that, anything is dry, but compared to what wrestling is today, this is like nowhere dry, like at all, like not, not a little bit. No, I agree. This is, this is good stuff and it has good wrestling and it has, you know, the angles aren't the best, you know, it's not like this is like brilliant booking, but it's, you know, it's there, and the crowd reacts be- more because of it, it's, so it's effective. Um, so, yeah, I think anybody who kind of dismissed early ROH because it was too dry, uh, give it another chance, because that's a bad reason to dismiss it at this point. Yeah, like, if you're still a wrestling fan, because either either you've changed your tune or you've quit watching wrestling, because all of wrestling has become dry now in some ways, and not that I'm not... I know you're a lot harder, da- more down on modern wrestling than I am, but even I, like... I hope one day the pendulum swings back. I yeah. hope it's. I I hope I love. I think the average talent in ring talent of wrestling has never been higher. I just wish we had storylines and angles more often again, and promos yeah. and like non scripted yeah. promos, all of that stuff. Yeah, you know the stuff we always talk about. Yeah, and but as a show, nothing I would say on this show was like going to be on my best of the year list, but. I thought there was a lot of good to write under really good matches. And yeah, it just ring of honor. Now as on this show, it feels just like compared to a lot of the other shows where like, Oh, they gained this little twist or they learned this, but made a mistake here. It feels like it feels comfortable. Now it feels like they know what they are. You know, they know what they want to do. It doesn't feel like they're learning a ton of big lessons anymore. It feels like, no, like we know what ring of honor is now and how it should be run. Even yeah. as I say that, as they've lost a bunch of money and need a new investor, but um, yeah, and you're and like and as you know, the title gets more established, and they 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 have you know more of these like you know big big time main events. It's going to get even more that way. So you know, I think they're I think they're on they're they're on the right track at this point. And uh, I thank everybody for um, waiting around for me and for a new show and it's going to be a fun 2018 as we go through 2003 ring of honor and hey we made up for the we're going to have over three hours here so we more than made up for the wait gave you a big extra big helping of through the years and next time we will be covering the epic encounter which will have dusty Rhodes coming to ring of honor in a bunkhouse i quit riot we will have um the briscoes rematching aj styles and amazing red and the big one if this is lives up to my memory we're going to be in for a treat paul london versus brian danielson two out of three falls i Ooh. i remember loving that match so i haven't seen it in a long time and Could you imagine they had to show this good, the Minor Champions, without either of those two guys? The, that's the other thing. Like in the early, early um, Ring of Honor shows, like if you would, if any of Low Key Daniels or Danielson weren't on a show, that would have tanked the show like by a noticeable amount. And now you can take Paul London and um, Brian Danielson off the show, and it's still really good. Yeah, they're they're. Uh... They're doing they're doing pretty good. And I'm very much looking forward to watching that match again. Me too, especially because my copy um, had the audio out of sync for that match. So it'll be nice to finally get a source for it where I can actually watch it without having like the commentary ten seconds ahead of the match. Um, if anyone wants to contact us, we are at through the years at g at gmail dot com. T h r o h is through. 
I'm on Twitter at Trevor Game. Matt is on Twitter at Mayor MGF. We're on the Pro Wrestling Only message board, Voices of Wrestling, Figure Four message board, and yeah, um, that's it. Uh, thank you so much, everybody. I had a great time, and thank you, Matt. Thank you. Good night.